Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, quick mank reviews. We also talk about Hillbilly Elegy and the Nelms Brothers. Join us to talk Fat Man. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 143 of Real Blend, a podcast that is recorded live on location from the Four Seasons Total Landscaping in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. On this week's show... All the networks! We've, we've always been broadcasting from there, though. We are. We are the official podcast. Okay, okay. And now there are other people around here for some Four reason. Four Seasons yeah. Total Landscaping. Uh, Netflix is going to be testing a linear channel feature for all of our French listeners. Uh, quick Mank reviews and also Hillbilly Elegy. A lot of stuff that's coming to uh, theaters in limited release. And the Nelms Brothers. Oh my gosh. This is such a great interview. When we get to this later in the show, the Nelms Brothers have directed a holiday film for the family uh, called Fat Man <laughs> starring Mel Gibson. And uh, it's fantastic. We're going to get into that later on in the show. Uh, my name is Sean O'Connell and I'm joined each week by Jake Hamilton. Of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jakey. How are you? Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really excited because we have a lot of good things to get to uh, this week, uh, including Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. Hello, Sean, Gabe, Jacob. How are you guys doing? I'm doing wonderful. Kevin, uh, Let's get to some <laughs> housekeeping. If you're watching us on YouTube, Gabriel? thank you very much for joining us. You get to see Kevin in his uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League sweatshirt. Uh, they're going to put more of those on sale, by the way, through the Ink to the People, which is a, a site that raises money for 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 charities, all different types of charities. And the Zack Snyder uh, merchandise goes to, of course, uh, suicide prevention. So we thank everybody who picks up one of those sweatshirts. But those are super comfortable, and I love them so much. I'm probably going to grab another one too because uh, I wear mine a ton. Wasn't it like 15 bucks or something? I'm trying to remember. I mean, this is not an ad. We're not trying to sell. We're just. I just remember being relatively I think inexpensive. It was close. I think it was closer to like sixty something dollars. If I remember correctly, yeah, I don't know it was, definitely wasn't. It wasn't fifteen. Why did I think? Oh, you know, it might have been like a donation thing. I don't remember now. I remember. I remember it being. No, you know, it was fifteen. Was the hat? Was that's the, what it was. That, that's what was fifteen. Was that was yes. the JL hat you gave you sent me? Okay, sorry. Anywho, if you're watching us on YouTube, um, we thank you guys. Go hit subscribe. Turn on your notifications. If you're listening to us, uh, where you get your podcast meets net, met, net, met. Check the show notes, um, and there's a link to take you over to our YouTube channels where you can subscribe and follow us uh, to watch us on a weekly basis. Because the sometimes YouTube videos we always have really cool elements. They always mm-hmm. remind me the YouTube videos that like sometimes I react to things oh, that yeah. you say, and I don't realize really that I'm reacting to them. Like and the Ryan usually... Johnson Star Wars thing. Yeah. Did you see that? I saw. But that. that's fine though, because that means that you're engaged in the show. 
and you're you are listening to everything that I'm saying. As opposed to you know when, <laughs> when the Astros were in the playoffs and you were talking, I was sitting here going, uh huh, uh huh, right, exactly. Uh-huh. That, did, that at least that didn't last very long though. So uh, weekly poll. So uh, who recommended this one? The best movie released to streaming so far this year has been who is that? Jakey. Yeah, that's what I thought. Oh, look at your Astros mug. Very nice. Okay, here are your choices. I'm going to throw it to You're Jake. Drinking the tears of everyone who lost. I I didn't realize that was a mug. I thought that was an Astros trash can. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's filled with the tears of everyone that lost in 2017. Mm. Uh, this was your weekly poll. Mm. What is the best film released? To, we're about to get overwhelmed with um, streaming options coming, whether it be things like David Fincher's film Mank or Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy. Um, so we figured we'd take a, a, a sample and see where we are so far in 2020 and discuss the films, uh, the best films that we thought have come to streaming so far. Now I gave you uh, three and then I asked for other and a bunch of others came in. Gabe, you didn't happen to look at the others, did you? Cause I know one that stood out. Uh, I'll pull it up while you're, while you're letting them know. Okay. So Jake of the ones that I gave Palm Springs, the trial of the Chicago seven, and Hubie Halloween. Which one do you think? <laughs> Wait, Hubie was on there? Why did you put Hubie on there? Yes! Why did you put Hubie on there? Kevin, why did I put Hubie on there? Because it's awesome. Thank <laughs> you very much. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, we jokingly say it's awesome. I do like Hubie. I don't think you jokingly said it. I like I, Hubie. I put Hubie on there. This is this is what made me feel really bad. I put Hubie on there as a joke. It's like a running joke for the for the show, right? For the show, because we're always talking about Hubie Halloween. And then underneath, a bunch of people were like, the five bloods? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. all right. Your joke <laughs> meant that the winner probably got excluded. <laughs> I probably should have put Spike Lee on there. Yeah. I, Sean, in all honesty, settle this before Jake answers this question. I know yeah. we joke about Hubie Halloween. You actually enjoyed Hubie Halloween. Yes, I gave Hubie Halloween two and a half out of five. Oh, <laughs> it doesn't so, sound like you enjoyed it too much. <laughs> listen, it should have been a lot worse. I've given most of Sandler's other films a lot less than that. Two and so a half I, is 50%. That's like an F. <laughs> yes, but graded on a curve, I laughed more than I thought I was going to. So Jake, of Palm Springs and Trial of the Chicago 7. Which one do you think prevailed? On I'd our say poll? probably Chicago Seven. I feel like still not that many people have seen Palm Springs, or not enough people have seen Palm Springs. So Trial got forty-one percent. Sure. Palm Springs got thirty-six. So close enough. And then other, I said, tell us. And we got a lot of people who said uh, Spike Lee. Any others that you saw in there that stood out? Uh, King thing. of Staten Island got some mentions. Okay. When it comes down to the end of the year, are we counting Hamilton? For top tens, I don't think so. My opinion on that is swung. Um, I when I watched it and and I th- I loved it and I thought like oh that'll totally make my top ten because it's one sure. of the ten best things I've seen this year. Um, sure. I don't think it's a movie. I think we've discussed this before mm-hmm. on the show, and well, I don't. Sure. I don't think. Well, it's a I, movie. I know we discuss, We had the discussion of like, is it a movie? Is it not a movie? But I don't think we've had it in the in the context of now that we're slowly kind of starting to build our top ten. Um, I because because my I don't know I don't I know the academy's doing something different. My top ten stops on December thirty first. Um, so only... so I was trying to decide if we were going to put Hamilton on there because I was I was looking at what my list is so far and it's it's thin baby. Well, here's the thing: I don't think that you will you're not violating any. Not that these things matter anyway. If you're going to put Hamilton on your top ten and you can defend it, fine. That's fine. Sure. Right, I, but it's funny because like I would honestly at uh, like initially I would say Hamilton doesn't count. 
but I would, but I, but if you think about it, um, there's lots of films that are shot in the year. The movie doesn't come out. Obviously it was shot in 2016. Um, but I would argue that the, f- the film version of the, of the musical that I saw on Broadway and Jake, you saw in Chicago, it's a different, it's, it's a different interpretation. Uh, it's almost like an adaptation of what the play or the musical was like because of the way it designs its shots and chooses what to focus on. That's the only way I could see people making an argument that it's a movie because it's no longer letting you be like the God's eye where, you you know, you're essentially like looking and choosing what to edit and what scenes to look at. The movie is telling you what story it wants to tell you specifically through uh, camera lenses and close ups. So. I, I feel like there's there it's a it's a divide there that I think is interesting. I think you could argue either way because the I I think and Jake I don't know how you feel the film hit me differently emotionally than the than the musical did uh, only because I was I was told what to look at and told what sure. to think. So if anything, isn't that kind of what a movie is? A movie is the director's choices and the shots and the emotions and the manipulations of those emotions and. But again, I could also see the complete other side of it and say, oh, it's not a movie. It's just a production of the musical that was already done on Broadway. There weren't scenes set up that were different from the play. So can you uh, argue musical. it's a documentary? Is it, would it mm. fall under the parameters of a documentary? No, a doc no, would be so. about about the production of okay. Hamilton. Like, like if you Hamilton's like, America, which they did on PBS. Yeah. Okay. Like if which you were, is great if you've never seen. If you were backstage with like Lin-Manuel before the show, and that would have been actually been an interesting play, a way to play with it intercut mm-hmm. a documentary into the musical um i keep calling it play but it was I'm, already like three hours long i, I think come down to like how thin is my top 10 at the end of the year but we guys put it on do I need recently? something we were raving about hamilton have you watched it recently it's great it's just there it's just there i'm just curious if you guys have thrown it on i so, have not yeah i haven't either but i loved it i, I would like to see it again what's can that game? can i throw a hypothetical that i don't think is relevant but maybe it makes this this more interesting sure what if Hamilton, instead of being Hamilton as we know it, what if it were an indie movie by some first-time director who made a low budget? It's Hamilton. It's as prolific as you think it is as far as the content. But they said, we're just going to get a stage and we're going to shoot it this way so that Mm. I can afford to make my movie. Would you guys be... So quickly to champion it as a film? No. The musical never happened on Broadway and just the movie? Hypothetically speaking, let's just say like the reason it's shot this way is because like an artist wanted... To make it yeah. within this budget, yeah. I mean, if that, would you be if, more if reticent to say intent, it's it's a yes. it's a film? Sure, sure. I think it, I, I think intent. The problem matters. is the shadow of the Broadway. Yeah, in, in the same itself. way that like like you know, if if a movie comes to you know it airs on HBO, I'm still not going to put it on my final top ten list because it was made for television. Like the intent was, you know, just mm. like like Kill Bill was made as one film. <laughs> Therefore. Mm. It's intent matters, <laughs> but that's where it gets right, dicey. Right, yeah, it is. It is intent does matter, but th- then it gets dicey in that in that regard, right? With you know, then because the, we've had this discussion before about Netflix and HBO and Netflix and who uh, you know, if a movie's made for HBO, but if a movie's made for Netflix, but it gets a theatrical sure. run. Now, if sure. HBO, if HBO starts making films that get theatrical runs for a week or two, would you start putting those in? Yeah, because then they're they're a studio just like any other studio. But wait a second. Um, Hamilton was supposed to have a theatrical release. Exactly. So so Hamilton falls under the umbrella of like... But I think it's... For me, it's it's less about the the theatrical aspect of it and more about the fact that they're just recording something that happened on stage. Isn't this Mm -hmm. a null point, though? Didn't didn't they already... Didn't the Academy already say that Hamilton... 
isn't going to be able to participate in the Oscars. In Correct. That. So, Correct. So uh, this is just more but of I, but I, I mean, I don't always go by the, you know, because my, the Academy is going to, their season's going through February. I'm stopping, I don't know what you guys are doing. I'm stopping yeah. my top 10 on December 31st. So I'm already go- doing different things that the Academy's uh, doing. I'll join um, you I, on I, that. I pick good movies for best film of the year. They pick, I don't think you know, anything that they thought was going to come out in January or February is actually now coming you're out You're absolutely right. So, so they ended up like screwing things over for no reason because they thought they were, and granted, no one, none of us knew what, you know, what was going to happen when they yeah. made that call. But they really thought that like by extending it to February, we would still get West Side Story. Mm-hmm. What ha- what happens if Cherry is phenomenal and Tom Holland delivers one of the best performances ever? Would you not consider that as your and, and part of your? Can I, be, I feel like if Cherry were, I don't know. I just feel like we would have heard something by now. Is there any part of like like we like usually studios know what they have? Like we were just talking about how the fact that you guys have already seen a movie that doesn't come out till Christmas. And it's because they know it, that it's good. Like mm-hmm. studios, no. I mean, how many times have we done junkets for movies that doesn't come out for you know too much? It's because they know what they have. And if Cherry is terrific, it'll make my top ten for twenty twenty one. Interesting. So yeah, do do do, it, do we want to make a statement now as a show that we're <laughs> our top tens? Yeah, will yeah. Be, sorry, will I, be, I figured will that be was assumed. Yeah, twelve yes. thirty. Our top ten of mm-hmm. the year. Twenty twenty mm-hmm. came out this year. Yeah, All yeah. Right. I'll, I'll jump on that. All right, let's move to our interview for this week. Uh, The Nelms brothers have joined forces to create uh, a holiday movie that is uh, honestly, I kid you not, going to become a tradition around the O'Connell family household. We're going to watch this uh, together once a year because it just makes me uh, feel warm and special about the season. Uh, This is Fat Man, and uh, and this is the Nelms brothers discussing their Mel Gibson collaboration on the Real Blonde podcast. I would love to start uh, at some place kind of strange. Um, I really left the movie wanting to taste one of Mrs. Claus's cookies. Uh, <laughs> I would assume they are the most delicious, perfect cookies. Can you please yes. just talk about choosing what you showed for Mrs. Claus? Because when he grabbed one and ran, I, I identified with him so closely <laughs> in that moment. I'll say I'll say the funniest thing about that is like uh, I, I believe one of the producers had a friend who was making these cookies and she is a baker and that's what she does. She runs this bakery or these cookies. And that's one of the things she does is these specialty Christmas cookies. And uh, yeah, they look so good. Uh, everybody was jonesing to eat those damn things. Uh, Mel was putting them down. Uh, but yeah, we, we were, because he had to. I mean, every scene. <laughs> like, he's always taking it for the team, you know? Yeah, trying to get exactly, it. exactly. Um, so yeah, it was. I, I think they were pretty good, man, because everybody, everybody was trying to snag them all the time. And that was, moment that you referred to was, you know, Mel came up with that on the day. Did he really? Yeah, so funny. Where he's in the factory and he steals one, and she's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that was on the day. That yeah. was on the day." Can, can so you funny. can you explain how that happens? Like when something like that comes up on the day, do you have to redesign your day? Like, do you, like he says, "Okay, I'm going to do this in the shot," or was it part of the shot already? Just it just kind of improv the moment. So that moment right yeah, there, yeah. yeah, that moment right there is is something that you don't have to reblock anything or reconceive, mm. you know, because it's such a little nuance in there. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to grab this and, and and dart across the factory floor. <laughs> and uh, obviously, Marianne is is just plays off of him. She's like, oh, yeah. you know, like, what are you doing? You know, and he's not supposed to be stitching cookies. You know, maybe she's got him watching his waistline or something. And I mean, for the most part, for the most part, she, he doesn't tell you he's going to do it. He, you see him like kind of like Mel's like just turned and on the scene as you're, as you're going through it. And maybe like on the second take, he'll try something like that. Or if he has it early on, he'll try something like that. But yeah, it wasn't in the script. He tried it, I think second take. 
And uh, it was hilarious because I mean, uh, I don't know if that's the one we used, but we either used second or third take. Uh, but that, but yeah, he it created a, a certain amount of warmth and energy and goofiness at the end of the scene, which was great. There's a moment and with too. Mary, like, they did a ton of those little improvisational bits uh, at the end of the yeah. scenes. Um, there's yeah, a moment with there's the a cookies. bunch of them, and honestly, Mel would always throw like little nuggets at us. It's a moment with the cookies that was such a throwback to me. So obviously, I grew up on the Lethal Weapon franchise, and I adored it. And and I think in the second one, he was trying to quit smoking, and he was eating dog biscuits. And uh, he's driving in the truck, and he's got the cookie wedged in his mouth. And I was like, yeah, it's just a throwback to my youth for some reason. Yeah. Well, with that cookie, so it's great. We're big Lethal Weapon fans as well. Man, I can't remember the dog biscuit thing. I need to watch two again. Then he was, was going to cool. quit smoking, and then Murtaugh gave him dog biscuits uh, to. <laughs> To <laughs> chew on because he needed some sort of oral fixation sort of thing. I'm pretty sure it was the second one. It's, it's the one with the international uh, immunity, right? Yes. Diplomatic immunity. Immunity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to ask you both about title. Um, this is such a great title, Fat Man. It just, it, it just, it's simple. It's effective. It gets, it gets the job done. And I just wonder when you come across that title, was that initially what you wanted to call the film? Was there any pushback of calling the movie that? Because in my opinion, it, it makes the film more intriguing to, like if I see a title, like I was upstairs earlier, uh, my wife had some friends over and I was like, yeah, I'm interviewing the directors of Fat Man. They're like, Fat Man? What the heck is that? And and they, but they were they were wondering it from a perspective of like, oh, I want to see that. What kind of title is that? So I wonder, like, can you talk about the title process and whether or not you got pushback specifically um, because it's so it is so like just direct. Kind of in there's, your face a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's quite a few little tidbits on that title, actually. I mean, like I think why we like it is it sounds kind of badass in our minds. Yeah. And it turns this like Santa Claus into fat man, like <laughs> taking the fat man, you know, like a fucking badass. And you're like, oh, wow. You know, there's, there might be something dark or badass about this guy rather than just being like this altruistic, jolly guy who eats cookies. So that was the, that was, that was, that is why it's titled that is because, and also it's used as a derogatory term towards right. him when the bad guys start coming after him. And when the kid is like, you fat man, you know, like it's very derogatory and bad ass at the same time so we kind of liked it um there's also uh, there there is you know it's a little edgy we like that about it you know it's not it's uh it pushes it a little bit and was there questions about is that the best title absolutely um but ian and i were 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 passionate about it and everyone backed our play when we were like yo i think i I think we it it rings for us And and maybe the craziest thing about the title is that is not what it was titled when we first wrote it that was in the title, but it was not the title. The title we had when we first wrote it was The Kid, The Stick, and The Fat Man. And it was basically our affinity for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly that we were titled. Oh. And, and we had a manager back in the day, and she was like... A very smart manager. Yeah, and she was like, you guys should just call it Fat Man. And when, you, when, the, when the title hits you, it hits you. Right? Yeah. You're just like, that's it. Yeah. We were, it's like, you know what? You get, you get punched in the face with the title. Like the, the title right. punches you in the face. It's like, I want to <laughs> see Fat Man because the name, like without even knowing who's in it, what it is, it's the title that sold me, to be honest that's with really you. Funny. And it looks that's weirdly awesome. good on a poster too. Like, yeah. like I didn't expect <laughs> yeah. it to look so good, as good as it does on the poster, but it looks really good. It's nicely, it does, yeah. man. Um, I want to talk about sort of the mythology that you guys had to create uh, for for this story and sort of this idea that really, if you wanted to, there are like there are prequels to be made. And there there is sort of like really kind of very heavily hints of things that have happened in the past. And, and I'm just sort of curious, just creatively to have fun. Did you guys sort of ever just kind of start imagining like different adventures or other sort of like mythological stories that have happened leading up to these moments? 
Certainly. That's awesome. Yes. The first thing we did was we, the first incarnation of this was actually two short stories. We came up with the idea and then we were like, oh, hey, I'm going to write this short story. And yeah. he was like, I'm going to write this short story. And we both have these diverging, there was the same mythology, same guy. One was way in the past and one was current. And we wrote these two stories and then we sort of passed it to each other and read it. And we were laughing and we we're just like, and I remember Ash going, well, shit, we can never make this one, this one in the past. Like, this one's fucking crazy. It's period, yeah. It's period, it's fucking nuts. It's about his origin, and it's fun. But it was also, like, outside of what we thought was realistic at the time. And so we, we ran with his version, which was the more... Which was the more... It became our version. Right, it, was, it, it ends up being our version. But it was, it was an impetus off of a short story, two short stories, and we went with the one that was more, yeah. was more up-to-date. And then, like, we ended up having to make all kinds of rules for... Chris's, you know, like the Chris Kringle universe. And more, way more rules than we thought we were going to have to make up because it's like you came up, we came up with the concept, we wrote these like 20 page short stories and then all of a sudden it fucking gets into a whole, we decided to write it into a full screenplay and we're just like, oh fuck, like when does the kid get presents? When, when, how does Chris know and how can he tell and how does he, how, how's his mojo work? You know, yeah. like how do we do that? And like, so we like aged the kid, we're like, okay, the rule, you know, and there's like a, a, a word doc of all these rules, but like the rule on the kid <laughs> is that you do not get presents after 12 years old. So once oh. you become a teenager, you age out because we're like, there's no way, you know, 50 year old people are getting presents still. And even though it wasn't mentioned in the movie, that it was just a ton of rules, probably about 20 rules that we just needed to have down so that when we were writing it, we weren't breaking them. Yeah. It's, like, it's almost like writing about time travel. Like once it, once that snowball right. starts rolling down the hill, you got to start like filling in all the holes that are raised by questions. Yes. Yeah. 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 It felt like that. And a lot of time we would, you know, trip on ourselves or stumble and be like, ah, oh, fuck, go back and then go back and write it back up, you know, and be like, shit. Yeah. I mean, even like the, uh, the, the, the rule about him being able to, you know, get the download of someone, right? So he has to be consciously thinking of you to bring that, that download. Whether he sees you, whether he sees your name or whether he's like, oh, hey, Bill. Okay, great. Bill. Yes. Oh, yeah. He was good this year. Yeah. He's got a da da da. Otherwise, he's just overwhelmed with a cacophony of, of information and it voices. Just, it's just too unrealistic that he could manage a billion voices in this. Be a schizophrenic. Yeah. yeah. No, but I love that element. Whenever he comes in contact with somebody and then starts to, you know, talk back about the things that he knows about them and has known about them for all this time was such a such a fun element to it so it was fun to see the actors play off of that because a lot of times it's because you're ha you're ha you don't really know what he's what he's asking them or what he was referring to but like they had a lot of fun building their backstory the actors that were playing off of him yeah. and like understanding what he was referencing when they're like oh shit like he knows about the whatever you know <laughs> like Mel would like walk around and, and randomly like say shit to the military guys <laughs> like, oh hey Bill yep yeah, I mean, not all of it made it in the film but it was funny <laughs> um, so you know the, the, the way that they're sort of selling you guys uh, the brothers are these DIY filmmakers and, and I think it's great that you're getting these opportunities to make the stories you want to make and so for this reason I want to take you back I want you to take us back to the day that you find out that Mel Gibson is agreeing to be part of the film. Oh, man, that's uh, because, such a great day. That was, I, that, yeah. was a, that was a pretty wild one. I mean, first I, of all, I don't know if you're like, no, but like Ian and I went to a screening of Hacksaw Ridge. And how Mel great is that movie, by the way? That movie is awesome. Sorry, yeah, sorry I mean, to cut you off, but yeah. No, no. Yeah. And, and honestly, like, uh, you know, like there was there was things that we talked about with Mel about that movie and you know many, many others that he would was so generous with his insight. Um, 
but we, we go to see Hacksaw Ridge and he's doing a Q&A afterwards and he's there with that beautiful feral beard and he looks like this is, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's just finished the film, he's in the publicity tour and he just looks like a guy that's like, you know, a little, a little rough and around the edges, man. bearing a load on his shoulders and he and I turn to each other and I'm like, fuck, like that's the guy right look there. Him, like, look at him, the there guy. he is. He had the beard, it was fucking amazing. So, so now it's to your point, it's like, how, well, how do you go about getting him, right? So we, we, uh, we had an entry into his agent, so we made the submission. And at this time, we were also like just trying to get the movie set up. So we're going out to different companies and we're doing so we were we were fielding meetings with a ton of production companies and producers. And um, it was actually, because it's such a batshit crazy script that we had been peddling it for about 14 years and no one would make it, they would take the meeting with us and go, this is fucking crazy. You guys are nuts. But like, someone's going to make this one day, but it probably won't be you guys. And we're like, what do you, what do you mean? You know? <laughs> I think, I think half of those meetings were like, they just wanted to see the lunatics who walked through the door. Exactly. <laughs> but they, they would tell us that because they were like, well, look, it's, it's director dependent. You have to do something that shows what the tone of this thing is because whatever filmmaker you give this to, it could go either way. You're like, mm. oh, this guy's going to do it or this guy is going to do it and it's going to have this flavor this flavor so like are you going to lean into the comedy are you going to lean into the action are you going to lean into the drama we're like we're, we're going to lean into all of yeah, it yeah we're doing <laughs> that so yeah. so th what we ended up doing was uh building our way up with films and the first one we made was 1500 bucks and by the time we got to small town crime that was about 1.9 2 million bucks mm -hmm. and uh that tone that we that we hit in small town crime was what we were able to to point to and that was that was enough that gave people enough insight into what we were trying to do or what we were going to do with that film mm -hmm. now flashback to mel flashback to mel <laughs> so we get the so we were feeling all these meetings and we get an email from an like a nondescript address that we didn't ring a bell for any of us yeah and it was like hey i love the script i thought it was really funny uh let's sit down for a chin wag no sign off and it, and I'm like, okay, great. It must be another producer or financier that like wants to take a meeting with us and tell us we're crazy. So I'm like, okay. So I get on there and I write, type it out. I'm like, Hey, great. Love it. Awesome. I can't wait to meet you. Uh, who, who am I talking to? You know, sorry, there's no sign off and I can't tell from your email because it was a pseudonym. Yeah. Uh, and, and it wasn't he was like Braveheart. No, no. Like that. yeah, like, <laughs> Axon Braveheart Apocalypse, Braveheart Dude '69, or something great like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just freedom. That would have been even better, the freedom one. He got he, so he he goes, oh yeah, sorry, I I rarely I I always forget to leave a handle. This is Mel, and I went. Oh, <laughs> and I was called Ash. I'm like, oh my god, he likes the script that well. So. I mean, we, we didn't even know when or if he was going to read it because you sent it to the agents and you're praying sure. God that they think there's worth there or something that might interest their client. And then they send it to the client, you know, unbeknownst to you. Usually they're not like, hey, I really like the script. I'm going to send it to Mel now. They're just like, okay, I'm going to send it to Mel. And if he has the time or responds to this, then, you know, yeah. these guys will hear from him sometime down the line. It's and literally it, throwing a, a note in a bottle into an ocean. God, it feels like it. Man. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. And you just don't know when that message is going to wash back or if it ever will. So you're tr we're trying to get the financing going, you know, pick a producing partner and get the talent at the same time when that was all kind of swirling. And then we ended up meeting with him, sitting down for coffee. And we're yeah. like, okay, let's just see how this goes, you know? It was supposed yeah. to be like a 45-minute meeting at a cafe and like three and a half hours later – we're still there and we're all Jones and jazz and he ends up, he's got another meeting or something to go to. So he has to break away. But we were all like hugging and like have it like, it was like, it was still talking in the parking lot in front of his car. Like we were all pumped up about it. And it was really this moment um, where 
I mean, look, it, it, it's, it's a crazy script that mixes a lot of tones and genres. That's what we love to do. But we wanted to ground the fantastic. But there's always a grounding to it. Like, we always want it to be very grounded so that yeah. you don't – because it, it, it makes everything kind of flow better in our minds. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he, the penultimate moment when we were like, this is the fucking guy, is when he tells us – he's talking about the scene uh, where he's standing at the balcony – He's talking to the elves. He's breaking it to them. Hey, look. He's like, and I think when I do that moment, I should just be like almost in tears. He's yeah. like, I feel like it's that kind of moment. Like, and and we're like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, and that's what's going to be so funny about it. And we're like, yes, <laughs> yes, you get it. That's and like you could like he immediately got like these layers we were we were we were aiming for in the script. Right. He just read right into it, and then you know was was adding his own and was adding his own flavor to that character and it man it just he picked this kind of western aesthetic and this rough guy he's an old cowboy and man we it was so fun you know collaborating with him um one of my favorite scenes guys and i don't want to give too much of it away is when you guys pull the camera way way back and there's a standoff between two characters uh -huh. late in the yeah. movie and that shot was unbelievable i love that shot so much that that's western aesthetic moment, you're talking about. that's probably the moment that we were sitting there like you know, punching each other in the shoulder, going like, "Can you believe this? Can you believe this is happening right now?" <laughs> so many times, it's so surreal because I mean, you have to understand, like, we were rejected for fourteen years, like, just kept getting punted, and then to have that moment where, like, can we have the elves and Captain Jacob come to set, and we're like, "This, this is, is insane!" Like, <laughs> you're like, what? Like, there'll be times where you and I be like, "I can't believe we're getting to make this." Yeah, that's, awesome, pretty amazing. that's so great, guys. Well, it, it's so weird because I remember interviewing Mel Gibson for Hacksaw Ridge. And then when I saw the Fat Man trailer, I'm like, that's the same look he had, essentially. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I realized because essentially the beat yeah. of the mustache. It's, it's interesting that Hacksaw Ridge was connected to kind of meeting and talking about his uh, his uh, idea in the film. So one thing I wanted to get to specifically is the idea of being brothers as filmmakers. Um, you have so many great brother duos, Safdie brothers, Russo brothers, Duffer brothers. Like there's so many incredible brothers who work together uh, uh, over the years with filmmaking. And I'm just wondering how that dynamic is specifically. Does one of you direct more than the other? Like you look at the Coen brothers, for example, and sometimes you'll see like Joel is just the director credit and Ethan is the writing or what, or, or the other way around. I just wonder like, is that something that like you take into account? Does one of you direct more than the other? I think I think ultimately, by the time we get to directing, all like we our vision has synchronized throughout the writing process. I mean, I, honestly, Ian and I say, and this isn't a cliche, like we are we've become so dysfunctionally codependent over the years. Like <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if we could get through a movie without the other one. It'd be pretty rough. Mm. Um, yeah, it, like he's like beyond like our working habits, which start in the script phase, where it's literally one of us writing, one of us pacing, and and going back and forth, yeah. and then after you after. I mean, look, you know how it is. Like you, you start to call, you start to get excited about something and then you start kind of lining up on like what that's going to look like. And you start laughing about certain moments or lines or whatever and getting really excited. Then one of us will put it down. Boom. And then we start pa passing it back and forth. And then pretty soon we're not even quite sure who wrote what by the end of it, you mm. know, or came up with what it's like, did you come up with that line? I don't know. Did you come up with that? I think you, I think you, it's literally mm. that ridiculous. Um, and then it's, just, it's kind of the same by the time we get to directing, like he's a professional storyboard artist. So we would, we write it out, he boards it out. And then it's like, 
it is what it is. And it's like, there is always room for an interpretation. It's more of a blueprint, but like you get, you'll get to the set on the day and it's like, okay, the gas tank is flipped around or the cars on the other side, or we don't have a gas station. We have a booth and you don't have a this, you have a, that. and that's, you just kind of lean into that and figure it out. Or the actor says, Hey, you know what? I'd like to do this and then walk around over there. And you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, Hey, you know, Johnny, how are we, let's, let's talk about how we're going to cover that. You know, our DP. Johnny's our DP. Yeah. Uh, that we've made like five films with these. <laughs> he's, he's like a third Nelms brother. He's the third Nelms brother. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think, I think the biggest thing that we get out of each other besides the collaboration and the building of the creativity is that I, I, I can't tell you how important it is because there's plenty of times. I think everybody has those moments of self doubt or, or, or a moment that there you, you think is going to work incredibly. And you're like, Hey, like this is going to be fucking great. And he's like, it's, that's a shit idea. And I'm like, <laughs> is it? And then we start talking about it. And once in a while I'll win him over. I'm like, well, what if I did that shit idea like this? And he's like, well, actually <laughs> well, that's kind of works. Yeah, you know, like that, that works. Or the other thing that happens if, if we're off like that, usually we're boom, 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 90% of the time. But if we're off, usually it goes to the most passionate person. So like, hmm. he's like, Oh yeah, uh, he's gonna have this watch. He's gonna do this, and he's gonna step down like that. I'm like, I don't know. That seems kind of. And he's like, No, no, it's gonna fucking work. No, no, because this isn't about. I'm like, I don't know. He's like, Trust me, it's gonna work. We have to have it in the film. I'm like, All right, shit. He's got a vision for this shit. And then, yeah. lo and behold, every time that happens for one of us, like, I can I can remember like a, a specific line in one of our movies that I was like, God, That's such. I don't like that line. I wish we could. I tried to edit it out. I tried to take it out in the script. He's like, no, no, it's got to go in. No, no, it's important because of this, this, and this. It feeds back into this. I'm like, oh, God. And then, of course, we finish the film. We start to screen it for those. We do like a little screening process, like five to ten people at a time as we're honing our edit. Mm -hmm. And I shit you not, every time there's a moment like that that one of us is passionate about, 99.9% .9 of the time, it comes back in those, in those moments when we're screening it. And they're like, man, that line just really hit me right here. And I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding. Like, He's right. Damn it. You know, it's like, like, and I think as far as like on the set when we're co-directing, like, if, if Ian and I are both hyped up, like we were watching something and we're both enjoying it and we'll just yeah. turn to each other and go, that, that worked for me. Yeah. Like, Does that work for you? Yeah, we're, we're, in. we're yeah, moving yeah. on. Let's go. Yeah. But you instantly get like a sounding board. It's like, good. Yep. Moving on. Yeah. You don't have to second guess yourself. You're like, there's my second guess and he's good with it. Let's go. Or, or man, I'm on the fence. And then if I'm on the fence or he's on the fence, we sit there and go, blah, 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 blah. And then within two seconds we have it and we're like, let's do this. You know, we run forward yeah. with it and start talking about it with the actors. And, and then quick thing. Oh. I'm sorry. sorry say it again. We have been tested. So we had, uh, we had, what would you say? Like John Hawks yeah. on, on small town crime. Well, we didn't even know. He Hawks didn't tell us the at, Like he was talking about it in a Q and a, I might've been South by Southwest or like a SAG screener or something, but he was talking about for a small town crime. He was talking about how he walked up to us on set and he's like, I was, he's like, I was nervous with two directors. I was like, how's this going to work? Like never worked with two directors before. He's like, so I walked up to Esham and I was like, asked him a question when he was alone. He's like, and he gave me an answer and then I wandered off and like, he's like 15 minutes later, I see Ian by himself. And so I walked <laughs> over to him, asked him the exact same question. So they gave me the exact same answer. He's on. I was like, okay, we're going to be fine. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's amazing. And one more quick thing uh, in, in the marketing, uh, your, your names are fully uh, fledged out versus just the Nelms brothers. It's your first and last name. Sometimes you see Rooster brothers or Cohen brothers. I just wonder, was that a personal choice? You wanted to have your full names or do you, or do you want to be known as the Nelms brothers? I'm just interested to know like either one. We're not, we're not particular about anything like that. I don't, I don't know why it's like that. I, 
I, maybe it's just because at the, at, at a moment we were, cause there's plenty of times where the stuff says Nels brothers on it. We'll send a script out and it's like, Hey, this script Nels brothers version, or Hey, this yeah. script Nels brothers. Like we do it all the time. So I don't quite know why that is like that. Ian gnomes and Eshram gnomes. I don't know why it's like a, it's not like cool. a, it just kind of happened, you know. Jake makes <laughs> us put his name above all of ours, uh, <laughs> like, like, like Nicholson and Batman style. Like like Nicholson got top billing over Batman, so if it works, if it's good enough for Nicholson, it's good enough for me. Um, I want to talk about uh, directing a director, like not not just a director, but a great Oscar winning director. And even though he is an actor in this film, and he's a great actor, whenever you make a, a directorial decision. Knowing that you're directing a man who has won an Oscar for directing, <laughs> does it add a certain level of pressure where you're like, shit, like, would he do this? Like, does, does he think this is okay? Does, is he cool with this camera movement? Or do you just have to separate it and go, look, we're the directors, he's the actor, like, we got to do our thing. So we tried to approach it like that, but look, there's always the level of like, we got the butterflies in our stomach because we're coming out with somebody who's so accomplished. But I think overall, we we luckily we've made a few films when we were able to sort of lay like lean on each other in those moments as i was just talking about when you might have any moments of self-doubt moments of self-doubt you're like this is good right we're not i don't know anymore <laughs> like mel wouldn't have done this differently right you know there's no moment like that because usually we're so like okay blah, 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 this is how we're gonna do it and we're like yeah this is how we're gonna do it we kind of march out there and start heading in that direction and there was, I don't believe there was a moment where anybody was, I can't, I can't think of one where anybody was like, well, why don't we do it like this guys? You know, it was like, that was the great thing about Mel. He wasn't ever, if he did do it, he was a Jedi because he was very, <laughs> he was incredibly like collaborative. You know, he would like walk up and be like, what's the lens on that camera? Oh, 65. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, what's that one? 30, oh, 35. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He would, he was, he was super highly aware of everything. Cool. Um, but I think, look, as a filmmaker, he sees all, yeah. right? He sees every hiccup, everything that's going right. But he also, I think, believed in the movie that we were trying to make. And yeah. he didn't want to interfere, interfere in any way with that. But he, and he was just a wonderful collaborator in that regard. Anytime he gave a suggestion, it was literally precursed with, now look, guys, you don't have to take anything I say. Which was amazing. It's like takes all the pressure off, and you're like, actually, I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> yeah, it takes all the, like, this is how you're gonna do it, boys. Takes all that shit out of it, and you instantly your guard goes way down. So he's he's he was such a great collaborator in that way that he'd be like, uh, you know, like, oh, uh, you don't have to do it this way, or or this is, but but what do you think of this, or what do you think of that, or and a lot of this I, I recall more from the editing process because we finished the film, we gave it to him, we said, hey. We'd love you to take a look at the film, you know, of oh, course. Cool. He watched the whole thing through and he's like, he's like, I'm great. I'm done. You got, he's like, I feel like you guys did a, a great job. I'm excited about it. And you don't have to touch a frame. We're like, fuck, are you serious? And then he was like, we were like, well, look. Can you put that on the poster? Like Bill Gibson says, it's really good. <laughs> well, we were like, if you have any refrigerator moments, let, like, us, let us hit us, right? So he calls us two days later and he goes, hey, I've watched it three what's times. A, what's a refrigerator yeah, moment? What is that? So refrigerator moments like something where you you watch a movie and then later when you're having that midnight sandwich and you open up the fridge you're like, oh, you know, I've never that heard of that actually before. Makes sense in the shower moment. Yeah, the refrigerator. Oh yeah, moment. I have did a ton of those. Yeah, did exactly. he have a refrigerator moment? Did he? Have so he called us three days later and he was like, hey, I've 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 watched the movie three times and I see I see a couple things. <laughs> He's like, I see a few things and we're like, oh well, like we're gonna write them down. We're gonna write them down. He's like, well, what if I just come over and we're like. Yeah, because we were editing the movie in Ian's basement, and so we were like, so we come on over here. Yeah, so, so he came over, we sat down for like nine or ten hours and just went through the whole film, and it was amazing, because he was like, what are you, 
okay, well, this, I, I don't know what to do here, but let's talk about it and fuck around with it. So he's like, I just thought maybe we could cut two seconds out or, oh, what if he's, we cut to him running and what if we, do, you know, it was just a lot of what ifs and we just went through the film with him and fucked around with it for 10 hours. A lot of stuff we kept that we thought was really cool. Some stuff we just couldn't work. He's like, ah, you fucking had it better before. Let's go back. You know, it was, it was really fun, man. It was That's like a awesome. master yeah. class in like, it was great. What would Mel Gibson do? Let's yeah, fucking yeah. Wow. It and was like, fun, man. And then totally, like, like Ian said, like when he walked out the door, he's like, hey, wash it he's off. Like, if, you, if you look at this tomorrow and you're like, I like the way it was, he's like, no sweat. I'm happy. Did, did he I ever like, start like a piece of advice with, well, when I was on Braveheart, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> he well, did a couple times, but, <laughs> but the advice were amazing. We were like, yes, give us more of that, please. We stole as much of that as we could. Dude, he'd, be, <laughs> he'd be sitting there on set and just regaling people with, oh. with all kind of war stories from, from films past. And he'd be like, well, on, on Braveheart, like, I would double print some frames, like when the yeah. when the when the stuff would go through people, and we're like, okay, we're like we double printed some yeah. shit in Fat Man, we're like we double printed some shit in Fat Man. Man. <laughs> Which frames can, can do you mind? Because I remember when I interviewed him for Hacksaw Ridge, he talked about the double frames. Oh, that's amazing. For for and then what what did you use it for here? I would love to know. Well, I don't want to say because it kind of gives away a lot in the movie, but mm -hmm. there's 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 a bit okay. of a of a. Of a of a scuffle. Of a scuffle and something mm -hmm. dramatic happens. And so mm -hmm. we just emphasize it a little bit more. We, we hang on another frame there. When a certain that's awesome. something happens. <laughs> that's, that, that's the Braveheart moment I've, I actually want to it say. Is. <laughs> it is. Like, yeah, you're right. It's a right. Braveheart-esque moment. Um, I, I want to just talk briefly about uh, this element of the film in that, um, you know, because the title is the title and it's impactful, but, but it doesn't really give away what the movie is. But then when people sort of give the one sentence description, it's like, oh, well, Walton Goggins is an assassin who's going to kill uh, Santa Claus, played by Mel Gibson. And you're like, oh, I'm in, right? That's it. But when I finally sat down to watch the movie, I was amazed at how long you guys wait. You're 30 or 40 minutes into the movie before you guys actually tip your hand. Like some things are indicated at and some things are, you know, hinted at, but it doesn't really push all the cards onto the table until you're pretty deep into the movie. And I wanted you guys to just talk about like having faith in your audience to, to stay with the characters and to, and to really get into the, the problems that they're having, uh, as opposed to like a yeah. trailer that might put out like, Oh, this is exactly what the movie is. You really take your time and, yeah. and lay out this world. There's like three components that are going on and they they all have to converge and I was super impressed by the patience that you guys had well I, I think it, it's a couple of things right I mean one it's a character piece and like I think the most important thing in a in a movie like this I mean it's why the good and the bad and the ugly works so fucking well <laughs> yeah. you spend so much time with each one of those characters even fucking angel eyes you're like yeah I'd follow mm -hmm. this guy I'd follow this guy for two hours he's fucking a great character he's amazing yeah um and so for us like you need that investment with the story with the dynamic uh to make everything start paying off later yeah so I, like we we wanted you to get in there and really when we wrote the script and we started passing it out because I, I know when you get to this point and you have to have a certain amount of marketing to get people to understand what you've made so hopefully they'll be intrigued to come see it so like you said like the, the title doesn't quite give it away. The first 20 or 30 minutes of the script doesn't quite give it away. We drop a few mm -hmm. hints, but when you're reading the script, it's a lot like watching the movie without a trailer. You're like, yeah. Oh shit. He's Santa Claus. 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah. minutes in. Fuck. Like, like yeah. that would have been great to be able to get people to go into the movie. No, not knowing that not knowing. because it's how the trailer is structured. But the only thing we could do because every distributor is like, no, you gotta, <laughs> you can't yeah. hold that back. If people walk it, like, you're going to have a lot of people going to see this movie because of the premise. Yes, sure. Don't get them in there on the premise. They're not going to go see the movie. So yeah. it's like Mel 
or any actor just being a blue collar warehouse owner having <laughs> business troubles is a right. very different movie. Right. Can't pay his bills. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's the one thing when we were writing the script, we were like, I want, we got to find a way to get people into Chris as Chris and not as Santa because, and that's what we're doing for the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie. We're building this guy yeah. that you're at, that you go, Oh, this is my hero. He's got troubles like yeah. I do. It's fucking hard times. His wife's trying to fucking ha- help him out of this funk. How are they going to fix this? Holy shit. He's fucking Santa. The <laughs> fucking problem. Yeah. Wow. Right, 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 right. And the same yeah. thing goes for us with, with our, uh, with, with Walton and, chance yeah right like we want you to be equally invested in those characters and not just have them be some generic bad, bad I, think guy. Yeah, I think like with billy i mean you can easily you could have easily just had him like all of a sudden he's evil richie rich immediately but we yeah. wanted to like get you to like him at first oh grandma well, maybe you just don't quite know yeah, oh grandma this and that and i love you grandma and then he comes downstairs and he's kind of shitty to the help and you're like was he shitty to the help? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. shitty to that maid. What an yeah. asshole! Uh, was yeah. he? You know. Yeah. And then in the next scene, you see him. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. he's a precocious little man, and look, he's made this amazing project. Maybe he is a good kid. Then he loses, and he becomes like gobsmacked that he's just fucking lost. <laughs> now he's down the. Yeah. Now he's down the rabbit hole. And then, like, like, <laughs> and then for us, we wanted to give uh, Skinny Man's character like some of the the world to build out. Yeah. So in that opening scene, when he's got the the bat and he's, and you see mm. the badges and all this stuff. It's like, it's fleshing out the world. So you're like, Oh, okay. Like shit. Santa Claus is fucking real in this world. <laughs> yes. People for the most part know it. And there's, it's probably a lot like this world. Not that he's real, but they, there are people like kids that go, Oh, Santa's real. And then at a certain point you realize, Oh shit, he's not real. It's my parents. Or, like, right. but, but th- there are people that believe in Santa or there are people that believe in the Christmas spirit. Like mm-hmm. that's a real thing. And then we sort of cap it off by having the placards, but that it's like these are coveted items, you know. Terrific. So uh, I'll end it on this only because I'm just interested. My bro- um, I was thinking of you as brothers and growing up and having Christmas. I'm just wondering what your Christmases were like as brothers, um, because like my brother and I, uh, we had our traditions. Uh, I-, I was just interested to know, like, you know, because you make a movie like this. I just wonder what your Christmases were like as kids. Like, did you open up gifts first? Who had the first gift and second gift and things <laughs> like that? Oh, interesting. Uh, well, look, I mean, our, our, our mother uh, and father are hardcore. They go hard on Christmas. That, uh-huh. was the, that was the holiday. That was the holiday. Like, we would walk into a grocery store or like a Target <laughs> or something, and we'd be like, oh, hey, can I get No. Oh, can I get No. And then like when you get to Christmas, all that shit's there, and you've got <laughs> 50 things to open up. And then you go back to school, and you're like, oh, maybe all this shit I got. And your friends are like, I got five things. And you're like, fuck. But I guess it, even now, you know what I mean? Like, because our friends would go out to the yeah. mall, and they'd come back with all this shit. And we're like, God, how'd they get all like, that? Like, I'm like, Mom, can I get a pair of shorts for school? It's like, no, got to wait for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> like, how long? Like, like, months away. But they went hard on Christmas. They saved it up, and all that shit was under the tree. You got a whole year there under the tree. Do they but, find it odd, then, that you made a movie where Santa gets hunted by an assassin? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think our mom is still shaking her head. You know, she's not, not quite sure what, what went wrong uh, with with all the effort that she put into Christmas. <laughs> she tried to make it special and happy for us. <laughs> well, we can't thank you guys enough for joining the show, honestly. Uh, and so, let people know uh, how are they going to be able to see the film in the weeks coming up. Yes. Yeah. So theaters, it comes out of theaters November 13th. I think uh, it's still kind of expanding, which is amazing because every day they seem to be sending us a list of five or six new theaters, which is amazing. I think it's just 
in the parlance of our times, as these theaters are, are realizing they're going to be open during that time, they're kind of saying, yes, okay, hey, we, we can put you guys up. Uh, but, I mean, Saban's doing the best they can to get us in as many theaters as they can on the 13th. And then um, 24th. on the 24th, uh, we come out on uh, the on-demand v- platforms. Yeah, yeah. VOD. Oh, terrific. Yeah. Good. That's well, great. That's a perfect window. We think we, we we were talking about that the other day about how the windows are. I'm glad you're getting theatrical because I feel mm-hmm. like this is a great theatrical film. So we we really appreciate you guys uh, being on our Real Blend podcast. This has been an absolute honor, and uh, we're so excited for people to see this film. And and obviously, thank you for sharing all your stories and with with Mel Thanks. Gibson. That story of him coming to your house and editing is insane. Like that <laughs> is like one of the coolest things I've ever heard. So it's it's, it's been a pretty surreal experience. Yeah, not yeah. even a lot. Awesome. <laughs> I hope it's just it has been amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I hope it's just starting for you guys. I hope it's... Uh, thank you so oh, much, man. guys. Thank you. And please don't forget about us as it continues on and you guys keep making movies. Please, please keep coming back to... The <laughs> hey, don't forget about us. Keep coming back to us every movie we make. Yeah. <laughs> we're trying to make invitation up. anytime you want to be on our show. Anytime. Dude, amazing. Thank you. That's thank good, you, guys. guys. Appreciate it. Those guys were awesome. We want to thank them so much for coming on. Uh, thanks to the Elms Brothers for... Coming out of the Real Blend podcast, and we want to recommend Fat Man. Well, Kevin and I are recommending Fat Man. Jake, did you, Jake, did you, you caught up with it? Did you not? No, no, no. It's really fun. You guys should definitely give it a shot. Kev, what did you think of it? Oh, well, I really enjoyed Fat Man, but I also want someone who listens to Real Blend to count the number of F bombs said by the director, the Nelms brothers in that interview. I would like to know, remember how many there, it, that, one of them yeah. kept dropping. Do you really think that that's the record? Do you think that? I, think, uh, I don't think, I think so. I think we've had far more. I, I don't think know. Was, that, if close. anything, by me. I think that interview <laughs> might hold the record of most F bombs. I'm trying to think of who else. I feel like Apatow dropped some. Yeah. yeah. But Joaquin this guy was did. every sentence. Joaquin, yeah. <laughs> but most of the people that we get are really press polished. You know, like they know they're doing interviews for yeah. it. These guys were just fat man, <laughs> right? In, diving right in. So I'll, I'll tell you right now, one of the things that I found fascinating about this film was how grounded it was. Um, it, it, it somehow kept a realism that was so interesting to me. I can see because like, you, you have this movie that borderlines such an absurdity. I mean, you're dealing with a kid who hires a hitman to kill Santa Claus. And like, uh, like Sean was saying in the interview, they brilliantly don't dive really much into that. They, uh, until 20, 30 minutes in the film, because they're grounding it so much. Like, mm-hmm. like there's a scene. And I think Sean, you mentioned this and I, I looked out for it specifically where, um, I won't go into too many specific details, but the idea of su- uh, of Superman, of Santa Claus, is this concept of he's, he's a government employee and and yeah. and he's essentially has workers who are elves. And like there's this really devastating sequence where he has to, like, tell his workers that we're going to be manipulating the way we do things because we need money, essentially. And it's like mm-hmm. it works for some weird reason. These el- the elves have the, the ears are pointing up. It's 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 an absurd concept. It's R rated. It's extremely violent. <laughs> but at the same time, they ground it. And I think Gibson's performance is so great because he do- it's almost like that tone where you, you you don't take it too seriously, but you take it seriously enough where you can buy into it. It's almost like face off, right? As ridiculous as face off is, you buy into it and it's grounded in a, in a weird way. You actually buy into it. And you believe what you're watching. And I think those are some of the best films. Also Mondo boys, their, their composers 
incredible. Like that score. Oh, their score was great. The score is unbelievable. Like the score <laughs> yeah. is like so good. Um, yeah, I thought I really think good. Goggins might. Goggins's performance is just it's incredible um yeah. and that, that little kid is great too I mean there's some great performances and I kept thinking about the cookies Sean because you kept mentioning that during the movie so who did you get you got Mel paired with who with the kid Mel Gibson was paired with Marianne John Batiste ba- Baptiste okay. who plays and, Mrs. Claus right and Chance Hertzfield who plays the young kid who uh you know hires Goggins to kill uh, Mel Gibson's character Santa Claus that's Chris a King. weird pairing that's a the, weird pairing to put all three of them together. If you've seen the movie, it's a very strange pairing. Um, it would have yeah, made yeah, more. Yeah. It would have made more sense with Gibson and uh, Jean Baptiste, and then right. the kid with somebody else. Um, maybe yeah. the kid with Goggins. With Goggins, yeah. Goggins didn't do it. Oh, um, and I, I guess I can just go ahead and say this. Um, in the interview, and I think Gabe will keep it in there. Um, there's a real, there's a cool point where they were referring to double printing of frames. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I interviewed them yesterday, I, I was just like, listen, I'll keep this as a spoiler and I'll hold, I can hold this unless you want me to tell you now. Um, they told me where the double frame is. And if you're looking for it, it's kind of a cool thing. So back in the day, Gibson used to do du- this double printing of frames in films. It was just a way to, it's a way to essentially elongate a shot in a, and, and it kind of, in my opinion, it's an immersive tool for the audience and it kind of keeps the image up slightly longer and makes the, it makes it more effective. Um, mm-hmm. All I will say is that uh, they did confirm that the double frame is a is towards the end in the third act, and it deals with a sharp object going into somebody's body. Okay, that's all I, know I will exactly say. Exactly, what you're talking about. That. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I know exactly what you're talking about. All right, let's get to talking points. I find this unusual because one of the last um, in-person interviews we got to do as the Real Blend team was uh, John Krasinski for A Quiet Place. The last. 
Uh, yes, the last one that we did. We were in New York City before the uh, industry shut itself down. And it was for Quiet Place Part 2. We have not been able to run that yet. That movie has now been pushed back till 2021. And it turns out that before that film even comes to theaters, uh, it's going to be getting Do a spinoff. Do we still have that? In, like, who has that interview? Uh, <laughs> you? Gabe? I'd love to hear it. Like, honestly, like, I'd love well, to hear it. Krasinski keeps texting me. He goes, when are you guys airing this? I'm like, uh, no, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> really I'm, enough, uh, Emily Blunt keeps texting me. <laughs> In all honesty, John Krasinski's not texting me, but I actually was actually wondering that the other day, like, is, do we still have that file? Is the, is the, is the link still working for it? Did we download I, the file? I downloaded everything. Everything was safe. <laughs> and shout out to Junkie. I want to give a shout out to Junkie Productions. I know this is not going to air for a while, but Junk, Junkie Productions is the company who generally uh, puts together the press junkets that we do. They they set the cameras up. They they build our tapes. Um, they were so nice to actually professionally record the interview for us because Gabe wasn't there this time because I remember Gabe coming up for Tarantino, which was amazing. But shout out to them. They've been working really hard during uh, the yep. pandemic with all the junkets and the Zoom stuff. So I got to ask, do you guys remember the ending of Quiet Place Part 2? Yes. I cannot remember it for yeah. the life of me. I feel like an, enough time has passed and I've seen enough things that I can hardly remember what happened. In fact, whenever I... No, um, I can't, actually. Whenever uh, the talk of A Quiet Place 3 came out, my first thought was, okay, it's got to pick up at that place. Okay. Then tell me afterwards, because I honestly don't remember. I'll tell uh, you. We're super excited for Jeff Nichols taking over a Quiet Place spinoff. Now, we don't know any of the details, right? We don't know, like, what type of... Well, it's a, it's a story from Krasinski, right? It's Krasinski's story. Okay. Do you think that... Not that I'm not... Expi- now, obviously, we're all excited about Nichols coming in, because he's an incredible storyteller. But I can't imagine that Emily's going to keep making these. If anything, I'd no. say she'll do one more, and then that'll be it. I and would assume... Case, yeah, like... That- so is there any part of you that's, that's surprised that Krasinski wouldn't want to come back just to like if it just I'm not saying I mean, knowing that the studio, knowing any studio, they'll keep making them and keep making them and keep making them. But if this family is just going to be the core like trilogy and then they make spinoffs. Right. Aren't you a little surprised that Krasinski wouldn't come back just to do the last one and close it out? But wait, he might, though, still. Right. Like this is not. Quiet Place Part 3, there could theoretically still be a Quiet Place Part 3 that focuses on this family. Wait, I thought this was a Quiet Place Part 3. No, I think this is a spinoff. Oh, it's a spinoff. That's the way, yeah, the Hollywood Reporter was reporting it. Yes. Jeff Nichols is coming in to tell the story in that world. Yeah. Mm-mm. Oh, oh, then, oh, that's so you're saying, almost like when they were showing the campfires in the first one see, and you I, saw okay. other people communicating and you yeah, thought, yeah, well, yeah. how are they surviving yeah. in this weird environment? Which they, which they also touch on in part two. They do. Yes. Shh. Spoilers. I, I know. That's fine. It's, it's I saw revealed. it like a thousand years ago. I got to talk about it with somebody. <laughs> Wait, so, you know, so, I, was, I was talking. This is the most like name drop thing. Um, but, you know, uh, Kevin Smith was well, uh, Kevin's best friend. Kevin Smith was in uh, Chicago last week. And uh, somehow that like, oh, we were talking. He was asking me about how junkets are going. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I said, we're doing them via Zoom. And, you know, it's kind of how we're doing them. And he was like, oh, what's the last one that you that you did before kind of the world? And I was like, actually, I was like, it was a quiet place. Part two. He goes, You've seen it. Oh. And I was like, yeah, he goes, tell me everything. And I was like, no, nah. like, you know, but, but, but it was like, it's interesting. Like, I forget that. Like, we've seen a movie that, you know, uh, 0.0001% of the movie going public has seen. And we sat, I sat right next to Real Blend number one fan, beside my mom, uh, Chase, uh, her buddy Chase. So I, I right. keep wanting to call him Chase Crawford, which is his real <laughs> well, No, you call Chase Crawford Chase Cusack, I and then you call Chase Cusack Chase Crawford. <laughs> Sorry, Chase so Nichols, Cusack. We, 
Nichols, we assume, has to bring Michael Shannon back for this, right? Oh, like that's where yeah. But the the least quiet actor in the world. He when he really be, gets going, he could be subdued if he wants. Sure. He can yes. be brooding and menacing in a quiet. Sure. Way, oh know? God, he oh he would be great. You know what? We were talking about how Take Shelter and also Take uh, Shelter. Midnight Special. You've never, uh, Midnight Special. So you guys, like it sounds like you. When we were talking earlier, it sounds like you guys are more mid. I'm more of a Take Shelter guy. You guys are Midnight Shelter. Midnight Special. Midnight Shelter. Mid- Midnight I like Midnight Sorry, Midnight Special. Sorry. Midnight I think Midnight Special. special go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I think Midnight Special is maybe. They're both great examples of why he's perfect for a Quiet Place movie, but I think Midnight Special 100%. really captures the tone of him protecting his family and being on yeah. the run from something. Did he do, yeah. did he do so, Mud also? Yeah. Mud, yeah. Mid- he did Mud too? He well, hasn't made a bad damn. movie. Damn. Not Wait, Mud's one. terrific. Shotgun, wow. is it Shotgun Stories was his first movie? Uh, I'm not sure. Fantastic. This sounds like a man that needs to be on Real Blend. Well, that's part yes. of the reason I'm so excited about this is... So uh, he's the kind of filmmaker who he makes his movies in his hometown in Texas with the crew that he's had forever and Michael Shannon. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he doesn't really do, I think Midnight Special might be his biggest budget um, that he shopped around, but he really like yeah. is, is keeps things very indie. And I would love, I love the thought of him doing a Quiet Place movie, it making a ton of money with his name on it and him getting a huge budget to do a Nichols original is, is what I'm hoping the best case scenario is. Midnight special is midnight special is the movie that put Nichols in the map for me personally. It's just, so good. It's yeah. just an incredible film. I mean, if anybody out there hasn't seen it, it's like one of my favorite, it's like one of the best sci-fi movies I've seen. in. I can't remember the last time I saw something like that. I mean, interstellar probably, but it was, it's great. I'm so. torn between, I want John Krasinski to come back and finish a trilogy, but I'm also intrigued to see what else he can do. Right. Like I, sure. I kind of want him to take on another project, explore something else, because I really do feel seeing those two films that he's got a lot of potential. And well, I that's why I always liked what Nolan did with the Batman trilogy, which is do a movie in between. Right. Like he did. He did Batman Begins and then did the prestige, came back for the Dark Knight, did uh, Inception and then came back for the Dark Knight Rises. Isn't that what Coppola did with Godfather? Right. Didn't he do like. Did he do the first two and then he do Apocalypse Now in between? Am I wrong on that? Well, there was like a 20 year gap between. Right, right. But there was. Oh, do you think uh, Paramount would give us Coppola for the um, remastering of part three? Oh, no. I, I know exactly what I was thinking about. I was thinking he made. No. I think he made the conversation no. and Godfather. Well, did, he did conversation and God. I thought he did conversation and Godfather like they the were same both year. 1974. They were both Damn. nominated for best picture, Damn. too. He had that's a, ridiculous. That, that's like a Spielberg, yeah. uh, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park kind of thing. Dude, he had the conversation, and uh, was it Godfather one or two? I thought it was one. One, either one. It was they were nominated for Best Picture at the same time. Yeah, that's <laughs> that, insane. That's crazy. So they split the vote. Come on, that's not fair. Something else must have rose up. No, because Godfather won it. Didn't Godfather it? won. They just yeah, split the Godfather vote. Morning. Well, anywho, uh, Netflix is going to be launching its first linear programming starting in France. So this is Netflix exploring whether it could be a channel, uh, programming its own content, putting in uh, films and television shows of which it has uh, ownership of, I'm going to assume. It's largely just Netflix stuff. Uh, I don't necessarily see why this is a thing because the beauty of Netflix is that it's um, at your fingertips programming and that you can start and stop whatever you want and why would you want to adhere to It's almost like they're going backwards Towards, they're going to reestablish the model that they helped to destroy, which is appointment television, um, because we now live in a generation, I can speak for my own kids, who never know what time anything is ever on and don't care. Like, they just watch what they want to watch because it's available at the moment. 
it does to me at least um, signify how powerful Netflix is becoming, though. Like if they're able to establish a television channel that is uh, filled with their original programming, it shows what a back catalog of shows and films that they have backed to this point. But I don't really see the upside. Do either of you guys see the point of this? Uh, To me, it reminds me of at least before the days where you would have a touchscreen and you could choose between things. Remember when you would be on a plane and it would just show you a random episode of a random show and you yeah. would kind of be like, well, like, like I guess I'll watch this because there's nothing, you know, yeah. that, like, you know, it, it, I don't know. It's just sort of like, it, it, you know, like who is going to turn on the Netflix channel and watch episode three of season four of Stranger Things? Like, that's exactly the random ass thing I wanted to be watching. Like, if anything, it's just going to remind me of like something else I'd rather be. I just. I can't, I just don't see like who, I don't know who the audience for this is, especially when people have the option to watch something different. Like, I I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know who the audience for this is. Yeah, I'm not quite Uh, sure. Kevin? I'm just as baffled by this as well, because like you said, John, it kind of goes against the whole idea. Yeah, I don't. The only thing I can think of is if they're just, if they're establishing a footprint so that they can eventually debut um, exclusive things there, like, would that not be the only thing? If you could say like, we could give you a primetime exclusive window to show X come to our channel. Like, that's the only real thing that's left um, for these networks to hold on to is when they have something live and exclusive, right? Do they start, uh, is, is it like a, a paid channel like HBO or do they start putting commercials on it? I don't know. I don't think it's, um, it's okay. So wait, they said that it's available. It's not, not available through their set top but it's available through their URL. Isn't that how it's well, going to work? So, so it's important to note this is a test. This is not an yeah, officially yeah, yeah. launch. Sure. You can only, uh, so it's only yeah. available in their French market and it's only available on their web browser. So it's a very, it's, it's, it is a test through and through. And I think that what they're looking for, a lot of what you guys are talking about is how interested are people. Mm. But I do think that there's merit to it in that one, not everyone has cut the cord mm. and the, that audience may not be cutting the cord because they're not interested in, in that kind of model. They may be more likely to cut the cord if they see like, oh, I can just turn something on and it's provided for me. I think that audience might exist. Um, but also there's the whole uh, sort of like analysis or choice paralysis sort of thing that people talk about where you sit down for the night and you end up spending two hours scrolling through everything that's on Netflix and not watching anything, that whole kind of joke that there may be, I think the way that they're pitching it is if you're just looking to throw something on and have it on um, or maybe like a way to curate something. Like imagine if Tarantino comes in and you get the Tarantino week and it's all Tarantino programs out a week on Netflix that you turn it on and it's something like, you know, there's a lot of different ways that I think they could, they could mess with it. So I agree that it's, it's ironic given that they sort of have invented and perfected in a lot of ways the like, you know, choose whatever you want, whenever you want. Uh, but I'm kind of excited about it. I kind of, I think they could do some cool stuff. I don't remember if it was part of the actual two and a half hour interview <clears throat> or if it was talking to Quentin after the show had wrapped but do you guys remember how he talked about he met with Netflix because he wanted to go back through their programming and like the first thing he searched Dude, on Burt when Riddle's he got on movies. it was Burt Reynolds <laughs> and, just, and they're both Longest Yard yeah 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 it's two awful Burt Reynolds films uh, which is just such a Quentin way to do things so um, alright so I guess we'll continue to track and see how the test does over in France 
and see if Netflix finds new ways to uh, infiltrate our homes I and feel deliver like if, more programming. If Netflix is going to do anything, I think they should start going the route of their shows like Disney is with Mandalorian. Yes, uh, I, I like the weekly release. Yeah, I, it, To me, it's it, it keeps the show more relevant. I don't like the idea of consuming it all in one weekend. I think that there's something beautiful about, oh, Friday, new Mandalorian yeah. episode is out. Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think that to me, from a business model perspective, wouldn't you want eight or nine weeks of yes. like people discussing your content yeah. versus who's who's talking about Bly Manor now. Yeah. And no one Well, I'd no go even further in saying I, not only do I enjoy the Disney plus model slash Amazon prime model, but I, I still like the HBO model best where it's Sunday at eight o'clock. Yes. That's when it's available. Yeah. Not because uh, like, you know, Mandalorian coming out on Friday. Yeah. There's a I, group I of like people that, that have yeah. seen it Friday morning and I yeah, spend the whole day to, trying to avoid it. Like I have to like, like almost be weary of being on my phone Friday morning. Cause you know, we, we wake up when we off to work. Like I'm so nervous that I'm going to get on Twitter and see someone post a screenshot of, you know, dead baby Yoda or something, you know, like I, I just don't want something. I'm so nervous every Friday morning. This one's just, I you had to go baby to Yoda. Dead Baby Jeez. <laughs> I'm trying to think dark. of like, what's the most drastic thing that could happen on that show that people would freak 20, out about? 2020's been already pretty bad. That that would be... Can <laughs> <laughs> you imagine? Wow. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, I want to go back to His Netflix for a second. Just... <laughs> what if instead of a channel, if Netflix invested in a series of um, theaters where the only thing playing in their theaters was their, theat- was their feature-length programming? I don't well, want to go back theater, to the right? world. Yeah, they are. They they have what they buy. That one of them in. Uh, well, that was the whole issue with well, the Golden Age of Hollywood and yeah. the the Paramount Accords, right? Yeah. Was that mm-hmm. the MGMs of the world owned theaters and they were only showing their own mm-hmm. stuff? So I mean, they could, I guess. Yeah. But I don't. I don't want to have to like go to different theaters because different yeah, studios. Exactly. Are, like I don't want to exactly. have to go to this theater to see this movie and to this theater to see this movie. Can you well, guys why not? That? Why not though? Because it's a like, pain in the ass. Because back in the forties and fifties, that was harder to do. But now it's not. Well, now it's well, not. no. I mean, think about how many places only have a single theater. Yeah. And imagine if that single theater gets bought by Disney, and then it only yeah. shows Disney properties, which are a lot of things and most things. But the El Capitan. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't love the, the most love uncomfortable the seats in the world. Oh, it's the worst. I know. I, I do like that, that we... experience, though. I do like. Uh, I, I'm over it. I got to be honest with you. The, the the appeal of the El Capitan is is is, is over oh, for me. You snob. Oh, there's something it's so I mean, exciting listen, to be at it. I wouldn't prefer <laughs> to go to the El Capitan, but I do like the the piano. But uh, one thing I will say, going just real quick back to the Netflix model. Um, I just I have a would you guys think Netflix will make this change anytime soon, especially when they see how the boys was talked about for eight or nine weeks, how, mm. you know, Mandalorian. I think they're talking about yeah, it. But I mean, if you're but if you're Netflix and they should you know what they should do, they should test it with Stranger Things. And mm-hmm. I guarantee yeah. you that would have legs beyond belief. You drop episode one the day it comes out at a certain time, whatever it is, and then you have people talking about that show for nine weeks straight, nine, ten weeks also, straight. Also, too, Try if there's that. a gap in production, like if there was a gap in production because of COVID, and sometime in 2021, they're going to kind of have, and which granted, they've got so much stuff in the can, they're never really going to have a hole, but if they have like a lull where like they don't have as much stuff coming out because things have been delayed because of COVID, that's the perfect opportunity for them to start stretching things out and making things last longer. Um, you know, the crown could take 10 weeks, you know, to, could you imagine like, could you imagine if like last week were the series finale of Bly Manor? Like we all would, be, if they dropped the finale on Halloween night, like we all mm. would stay home and watch 
blind mail. We'd all stay home and watch so the finale. So they must have some kind of data that tells them that that's why that they're favoring the the total season dump. Versus I think it's because they had out. so much, but well, if they don't have as much by now, yeah, it but, might just be a habit by now. I think it became a bad habit, personally. I, I think that mm. the fact that we would consume nine hours of a show, it, there was no... I don't know, it's weird to say that. We, we, we consume films, obviously, in their entirety from two and a half hours, three hours, whatever they're going to be. There's just something... There, here, here's what here's the problem with uh, with the dumping of all the shows at once. It's it's like eating a gigantic meal and just eating it all at once, and it tastes really good as you're eating it, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's no more French fries, or there's no more. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's 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 a it's a strange way to give yourself everything you want at right away because that's kind of how we are designed as a society: get the newest thing, the biggest thing, get everything right away, and I think. I think one, it actually hurts from a storytelling perspective to consume that much content right away. And two, there's something beautiful about an episode ending and then looking over at who you're ever watching it with or calling your friends and just kind of like dissecting stuff. And I think, you see, that's what that's what you used to do with Lost. And I hate to keep yeah. bringing up Lost, no, no, but okay. like that, that's always to me the X factor that that those of us that watched it live uh, had. Because, I mean, it was, I mean, it, and Kevin, if you could, like, force yourself to do this, like, we would watch an episode, and then, one, we'd all hop on the phone and call each other and say, what do yeah. you think that means? And then we'd get online and, like, look up theories and, like, oh, that book that that character was reading, uh, you know, like, that, oh, it means X, Y, and Z. Like, that was, that was just as much as of the experience as the show itself. And, and the most I've been excited watching a TV show this year was the finale of Raised by Wolves because, like, I've been waiting for it for 10 weeks. Like, I, I was so excited going into it. Yeah. Well, it also, it kills water cooler conversation because you never know where anyone else is in the show. Yeah. 100%. It also le- right. it lessens human interaction. <laughs> we interact with each other less when we do this because you sit in front of a TV for eight hours and you don't even dissect it. So uh, if Netflix, if you're listening, try it with Stranger Things. See mm. what happens. Because I feel like, if you're if you don't if you already don't have Netflix and people are buzzing about a show eight you know three four weeks into it, you, there's no way you're not going to catch that that vibe and kind of get interested from that. I mean, I think right. it, to me from a business perspective, why not? Now, is is Netflix capable of doing that? Sure, of course. Okay. Why not? They can do whatever they want. Yeah, they're Netflix. It's, yeah, it's it, it, all they're the, the home of hillbilly elegy. Then they have. Oh, so let's get to this week in movies. Um, and we're going to get to a bunch of films that we have seen, but I'm going to run through really quickly the ones that are opening. In limited release that we have not had an opportunity to see yet. And the first one, I have to apologize uh, to everybody. It's Ammonite, uh, the Kate Winslet, Saoirse Ronan romance movie that I have had multiple, multiple opportunities to watch. It was at the 919 Film Festival. They gave me a link before I even went to it. Uh, it sat in my inbox. <clears throat> it's one of those messages that I just kept unread because I kept saying, like, tonight I'm going to watch Ammonite. I swear to God, I'm going to watch Ammonite. Then I was at the festival. Uh, there was a daytime screening of it. I was like, I got to get over to Ammonite. And then PJ was like, you want to go get wings? And I was like, yeah, let's go get wings. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I have a screening link sitting in my inbox now. And one rep was even like, hey, do you want a screening in Ammonite? And I was like, yes, please send it over to me. And then that sat in my inbox unread. And then a second email came from Neon. And they were like, hey, here's another screening, a, a screener of Ammonite. And I just can't, I can't make myself the watch it. The spirit of Kate Winslet was over your shoulder while you were watching Fat Man, just judging you. <laughs> but it just feels like it. I, I, it's probably good, right? But it, it sounds like the mo- a movie that was made solely to compete for the Oscars. Like she is a 1940s 
archaeologist who like goes to the beach and, and I'm sorry, uh, what, the, what the greatest movie of all time starts out that way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. Yeah, you're right. It's it's Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ammonite is Indiana. You're like Jones. sold, <laughs> but um, uh, but she falls in love with uh, or she she agrees to watch. Um, it's it's uh, Portrait of a Lady sick... on Fire. Is that it's what it pitch. is? It's it's is essentially what... Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But with so Gabe, you should be excited about this. You love that. I movie. am. I am because the cast is great. But right. I don't know enough to see if it's like if it literally was greenlit as like a Americanized version of that green. But I mean, it's about an artist who she's like in secret with with this person. There's there's the whole like secrecy thing is still there yeah. and they end up falling. It's and, but just the 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 smattering reviews that I that I read um, was like, this is a movie that dares you like to be as as subdued and quiet and introspective as as you as you physically can. So Portrait of the Empire. Yeah, that's yeah. another. Yes, exactly. So anyway, Ammonite is making its way to theaters and my inbox uh, in limited release this week. The Climb is another film that's been around for a really long time. Uh, that was at Toronto last year. I saw the, this is based on the Miley Cyrus song, right? You saw, no, you saw, I saw the Climb? I saw it and interviewed the stars uh, back in March. They came it, into my studio. Is it a um, bike riding movie? Or a- it started, well, it, it was. it's based on a short film. And it's basically two guys on like a bike ride and they start, they're like, they're hustling up the mountain and they're like, they're best friends. And, and while they're going up the mountain, one of them says, by the way, I got to tell you, like, I slept with your fiance. Oh. And then the other guy's like, I'm sorry, what? And then, and then the short film kind of just focuses on that. The film itself sort of expands on that and goes from that idea. It's, I, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, but now I guess it's coming out and I've been getting all these, even I keep, I keep reading the emails. Like, I feel like I've seen this movie. And I'm like, yeah, cause I interviewed the guys in my studio when it was that close to coming out before COVID. And then obviously got delayed. Such a weird year. Weird year. This is a really weird year. Uh, well that's coming in limited release. I was very quickly trying to get to uh, lyrics for the climb to make a joke, but my phone's not working. Great song, <clears> by <throat> the way. That's a great song. So is Party in the USA. Don't sleep on Miley Cyrus. <laughs> Jake, okay. do you recommend I the climb? I didn't hear. Do you, did you recommend no, it? No, I, I do recommend the climb. Yeah, I do. I enjoyed it. It's uh it's it's a uh, kind of a I don't know, I don't want to say like dark comedy, because that implies to me I, I think of like Fat Man when I think of dark comedy. But just sort of like the the idea of like laughing at other people's misfortune, like a little Schadenfreude, I guess. There was another sh- uh, another movie that was at t- uh, Toronto, and I want to say it's just called like the friend. Um, it has uh, who's the guy from? Um, yeah, Jason Siegel from uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Oh, I know what you're talking I love about Jason Siegel. Lauren 2019. It's called The Friend. It has Dakota Johnson, Jason Siegel, and Cass- Casey Affleck, and it's another one of these films that plays a film festival. Uh, Kevin, did Lauren like it? Because I heard really good things. I don't remember her thoughts on it because I, I, she loves Dakota Johnson, so I'm, I'm, I, yeah. I, I just remember her talking about it, and, and then it just yeah. disappears. <laughs> like, like what happened to that movie? Is it ever yeah. going to come out? Is it going to go to streaming? Like one day I'll turn on Hulu and it'll be like one of the recommended films, and I'll be like, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, that movie, the friend, uh, the limited release of Dreamland. I'm not even sure what Dreamland is. Anyone? Gabe, nothing. One second, he's looking it up, and another one. Uh, and I think it has Margot Robbie in it. I think is a uh, Dreamland does. The other one's called Come Away. I'm not sure what Come Away is. Uh, either. A teenager's adventures as a bounty hunter takes an unexpected, unexpected twist. Mm. Uh, Margot Robbie, Garrett yeah. Hedlund. Really? Um, yeah. 
Again, sound like those fake posters that are hanging up on a wall in the back of of another movie. Uh, But we did see Hillbilly Elegy, or at least Jake and I have. And we can talk about Hillbilly Elegy because the embargo release is up. Kev, we'll keep it spoiler free uh, for you. My uh, comment on this one, and I texted Jake in the middle of it because I knew that he was about to start watching it too, is that it has a very thick layer of Ron Howard on it. Um, which if you love Ron Howard, then dive right in. But I think that he does a sort of um, very earnest uh, but melodramatic approach to uh, human problems, and they feel very glossy. Like, you could have done this this story and made it pretty edgy, and it could have been really um, poignant and contemporary, and it would have spoke to a lot of problems that people are having. It's essentially a pull-yourselves-up-by-the-bootstrap story of um, this guy, J.D., who uh, wrote this memoir that the movie is based on. I did not read the book. Jake, you said read the book, right? Um, He ends up going to Yale, uh, but he comes from really uh, poor area of Kentucky and has to deal with the fact that his mom is a heroin addict. And even when he's older and is at school, has to come back uh, and take care of her because she's... um, falls back into her drug use and his older sister who lives back at home can't handle dealing with the mom anymore. And the mom is played by Amy Adams. The grandmother's played by Gun Close. And it's all these family problems and how they keep pulling him back in. The material is absolutely there to make for a really compelling film. But it's just one of those movies where the first 10 minutes and I was just like, oh, man, this is going to be this is going to be Ron Howard's version of the Hillbilly Elegy. And I felt really bad. I ended up giving it three stars out of five because I really thought that Amy Adams and Glenn Close were that good. I thought that they were really good in the film. <clears throat> I think they made the most of the material that was given to them. But if you were listening to a previous episode, I made a reference to the fact that they had um, a relative newcomer actor who's playing JD and both as a kid and as the college age or, or law school aged uh, version and he's fine but he can't hold his own uh alongside amy adams and glenn close and i thought he really struggled uh in scenes where he's supposed to be super convincing and so um the whole thing you know i i thought it was okay and i i thought the, the performances in it were really strong but the movie as as a whole just had issues how was uh zimmer's score i was reading that Hans Zimmer and David Fleming did the score for it. Was it memorable at all? I couldn't even, couldn't even tell you. I, I remember seeing his name pop up and thinking, ooh, Zimmer did the score, and then yeah. not thinking about the score again. Didn't as stand out. Progressed. Okay. Unfortunately. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I think the movie um, needed teeth. It had, no, it had no teeth whatsoever. Um, mm. It's a story that... And granted, I, I don't necessarily buy into the Ron Howard was the wrong director because he grew up in the Hollywood system and doesn't understand this world because that... I, that makes no sense. Like, you know, George Lucas has never been to space. It doesn't mean that he couldn't make Star Wars. Like, Ron Howard's in rural Oklahoma and all of his people are from there. Like, I it, would even argue he knows that side more than anything else. Sure, but it's just, it, that's not his filmmaking style. No. You know, and, and you called it in that you said the director of Florida Project would have been a great, great choice for this. And that was a, that was a fantastic call. Is that Sean? Um, yeah, it just... Um, what's his name? Sean, the guy who directed the Florida Project. Yeah, 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 yeah I couldn't yeah, think of the name, but like, but you're absolutely right. And in fact, that feel of that movie Sean is Baker. more so... You know, but I also, I disagree in that I don't necessarily even really think the content was there, man. For me, it just kind of felt like a bunch of different vignettes mm. kind of stitched together. There was no really like through line to the movie. It was just kind of like a bunch of like scattered stories of things that happened... Um, and you know, the book itself and they took so much, I mean, the book is, is a really interesting timestamp 
of because it kind of it came out if I remember right a, like after the 2016 election. Okay. And the the book really is a dive in and uh, uh, sort of a look at like these uh, uh, sort of social and economic issues that from the author's standpoint, JD's standpoint would make sort of a, a, a poor community attracted to a president like Donald Trump. Mm. And so it's less, I mean, granted, like the, the, the bio, biographical, uh, biographical um, aspects of the story are there, but a huge chunk of that is, is sort of understanding this culture and this world. And I felt like all of that was ripped out like that. You don't, you never really said there's that, there's one scene where they go to a funeral and, uh, you know, people are marching by or they're all standing and JD asks Glenn Close, well, you know, why do they do that? And she says, because we're hill people. Mm. Okay. But like, what does that mean? Like, I feel like we're just as, as an audience supposed to go like, ah, oh, okay. Like, I didn't, like, I didn't really feel like they, like they dove in. I wanted to know more about that culture. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know more about that society. I wanted to know more about what it meant to be a hill person. Um, instead, all I, I felt like everything was like surface level, mm-hmm. like surface level drug addiction, surface level, like quote unquote, poor people, you know, so, you know, I grew up in a poor, like Southern town. Like I, I know what that, that world is like. And I felt like I, it, it, to me, it, it was almost like if I were to bring a friend to my hometown and then ask my friend, explain to me what you saw, like explain to me what that world was like mm-hmm. and having them explain it back to me without having understanding of what it was like. Like, I, I feel like no one there really understood anything about what that world and what that story was supposed to actually be about. I'm also going to single out a scene that Kevin will appreciate, and it'll also reflect um, how poorly I think that the screenplay handles this. Uh, Glenn Close's character, the grandmother, uh, loves Terminator 2. Um, And (laughs) she watches it and quotes it uh, numerous times to the grandson. And at one point, the grandson says, like, how many times have you seen this, grandma? And she's like, "Ah, a couple of hundred and he's like, what? how come? And she's like, because I like it. And then and I was like, OK, that's cool. That gives me a little bit of flavor to who she is. And then she sits down on the couch next to him and she goes, you know, grandson, I've learned over the years that you're either a good Terminator or bad Terminator. <laughs> OK, but she says or you're in between. I was like, I was like, OK, like, like, sure, I guess like that's that, that means like and the grand like you're a person that like you're either a good person, a bad person or you're somewhere yeah. in between. And the grandson's like, so which one are you, grandma? And she goes, well, I like to think I'm a good Terminator. But for a long time, I was a bad Terminator. <laughs> I was like, stop with the Terminator analogy. You well, the thing that bothered me most ago. about that scene, and this is going to drive Kevin <laughs> crazy, when it, shows them, when it shows them initially watching the movie, it's the helicopter scene where the, the T-1000 like breaks the window and then yeah. smashes through. Yeah. And then the next, like, the next moment, the conversation is going through, the next moment is the end scene where Schwarzenegger says, yeah. Austin, like, it, it flash forwards like 45 minutes. I'm like, ooh, that's good. My first thought was, that's going to annoy Kevin. Yeah. That's going to really piss off Kevin. That's some, that's some continuity mistake right there. <laughs> I, still, I still think that that dive into the helicopter is still one of the coolest CGI shots shots in the history of movies it looks so remember like the reflections of the guy's face in the helicopter out get all right um so we're gonna keep our spoiler filled and in-depth conversation about this next film uh limited because it's not coming to theaters till later and we want to make sure that we have plenty of content to talk about on the show but we've all now at this point caught up with david fincher's 
film Mank, which is the uh, behind-the-scenes squabbling of how Citizen Kane got made, starring David Fincher as Herman Mankiewicz, um, and various other folk playing uh, high-level uh, studio representatives who are very invested in the uh, gubernatorial race uh, this for uh, California and a lot of the politics that go into both the studio system and how it affects the labor market. It's a, a deeper dive into that side of the industry than I expected. Um, I'll go first and I'll say that uh, I really like this movie a lot, but I feel that casual audiences are not going to care. I just don't think they're going to care. And that and and again, that's um a weird thing to say about a movie uh because I don't know who Fincher made it for. Like I Fincher might not care if casual audiences dial into what he wanted to make. And I know that this was a, a screenplay that his father worked on and um I I think that it's really important to him and I think it's a beautiful recreation of Hollywood, but I think it's pretty niche. Um I'm going to leave it at that and we'll get into a, a deeper dive um from my aspect when we get closer to it, but where did you guys fall on it? Kev, Kev, I, you really liked it a lot. Oh yeah. I, I loved it. Um, okay. I, I think it was one of the best movies of the year. I, I, um, I know it's not really a high bar cause it's been kind of a, uh, a lackluster year. Uh, I, I think one that I think what's brilliant about what Fincher did is he, he literally takes you from 2020 and just drops you into this time period. And mm-hmm. you are just you are just immersed in the world of filmmaking at that time. Um, that being said, it's not necessarily all about filmmaking. It's it, it's the story about kind of how Mankiewicz, uh, the character Oldman plays, uh, comes to tell this story in Citizen Kane. Um, and for me, I think one of the beauties of what Fincher has done here is it, it, it's pure immersion. Um, uh, Fincher is. Fincher had took me into his world and I was there. I mean, the Reznor and Atticus Ross's score uh, cinematography wise, I thought Oldman disappeared in the role. Uh, I think it's it's interesting because it, it it gave me a deeper appreciation of what Citizen Kane is. I mean, Citizen mm-hmm. Kane for me is not a film that I think that I that I absolutely love, but I admire. Um, I find the story behind it to be very interesting. I, I think it's a movie that, for, for me, atmosphere is such a key thing that I'm noticing in cinema this year. Um, and when a director is able to bring you into a world and forget where you are and immerse you, I, I'm, again, we can dive into the technical stuff later on, but I, I think the mono soundtrack is brilliant. It sounded like a 1940s film. Uh, I love the crackling of the dialogue. The way the movie sounded was as if a record player could play a Fincher movie. Hmm. Like if a, if, if a record player was spinning a movie and then the visuals were something that you could imagine. And that's that crackling sound that that but, that sound of a record. That's how Mank sounded to me. It was comforting. Hmm. It was weirdly comforting because it's not really a comforting film from a perspective of storytelling. But I felt like I was in the time period that this film was made and to be transported back that far in history uh, Mm -hmm. and to actually have it revolve around arguably one of the most famous movies ever made. uh, It it was it was cool. I I really enjoyed the experience. I thought it was wonderful. Love the film. Jake. Jake, where um, you at? I, I also really liked it, um, but right now I think for me it falls into that uh, respect it more than I love it kind of thing. Um, it, it has stuck with me, which which is a big X factor for me in terms of how I end up feeling about a movie. And so I will say that I have still thought about it. It, it feels like 
like a senior uh, uh, film study class and that it could be it truly fascinating, but it's also assuming that you have a certain foundational knowledge of not just Citizen Kane, but the, the Hollywood system of that time. I mean, like Kevin, you're right in that it is immersive, but I would argue almost immersive to a fault in that there is no, and, and the opposite of what Chicago 7 did, like Chicago 7 was very much a like, here are all these people and here who, here's who they are and here's what they do and here's how they play into things. Uh, uh, Mank was very much a like, you don't know who these people are, then what the fuck are you doing watching this movie? Like, <laughs> like it really kind of assumes <laughs> that you know like I, I mean, it, it assumes that you know Joseph Bankovitz, a, a, a lot of people, and 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 the Louis story, B. Mayer, and people it, like it, that. It assumes that you've like I would argue, like I know a, a lot of my friends have never seen Citizen Kane. I would tell them that this movie is going to mean nothing to them if they haven't seen Citizen Kane. Like I, I think you need to have seen and understand <clears> and remember <throat> Citizen Kane to get anything out of Mank. Like, am I wrong about that? I, I see. I would argue that. If the comparison we're bringing up with Chicago 7 and Mank, I think Chicago 7 is almost too on the nose and too melodramatic in that sense where it's like overly stating it. I think, see, it's funny you say that like Mank was a film that I the 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 actual struggle to understand the world was part of the immersive process for me. Does that make sense? So like, you know, when we're meeting a character, I didn't need a a a. a, a a Chiron to come up and tell me this is sure, but I, you walk into MGM and the, and the conversation is what fills that in. Um, and I think that, yes, don't get me wrong. I didn't know. I didn't know every person I was watching on the screen, but to me, it was almost as if I was like, I was in the forties or thirties, whatever that was, uh, that whatever that was, because it took place in the thirties. Early forties. Yeah. Right. Cause well, well, Citizen Kane came out in 41. So it must've been thirties. It had to have been in the thirties. Okay. Um, okay. So I guess my point being is that like, I felt like Fincher took me and just dropped me into the time period and said, enjoy. <laughs> Learn. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's like you walk through it and you're like, who's that? Oh, cool. That guy did that. Oh, I don't know. For me, it was like, I was there. That's kind of what, like, I felt like I was on the bed with Oldman writing that script. I felt like, and I thought Lily Collins was great. Uh, Amanda. Seyfried Seyfried was great. Charles Dance was great. And it was cool to me. I didn't know a bunch about William Randolph Hearst, a ton about him. Like, so it was cool to kind of get that fill in. And now I kind of want to go back and watch Citizen Kane now. I think it gives it context. Um, I think it might help me appreciate the film on a deeper level. All right. We will absolutely be discussing Mank as we get further through the rest of this year. It's coming to theaters, uh, limited theaters on. Wait, uh, is it limited theaters now and then December 4th on Netflix? Friday limited theaters. Yeah. And then. Okay, cool. So you guys will be able to start seeing Fincher's new film very soon. Uh, Last week, we had Vince Vaughn on the show and he was promoting Freaky. Freaky is now coming to theaters. Uh, It's opening appropriately enough on Friday the 13th. Uh, It is a body swap horror comedy. Uh, I wrote the review for Cinema Blend. You can go read my full uh, rundown of it there. My takeaway from it was that I thought, sadly, it wasted the concept of the body swap. I thought that um, it it came up with that idea and it was like, hey, what if we did a body swap where it was a serial killer and a teenage girl? And uh, that sounds promising, especially for a Blumhouse type film where they keep the expenses down, but they they amp the the gore. And it does have a couple of really cool kills in it. Uh, two or three, at least, that are highly original. But outside of just like, wouldn't it be really funny to see Vince Vaughn playing a high school girl? Um, I thought it kind of dropped the ball in terms of the places that it could have gone with it. And especially right off the bat, the initial scene is to me looked like a really great homage to like 
80s slasher uh, horror films and I thought the movie was going to keep that vibe all the way through and I thought it I thought it it missed the mark a bit. So I was kind of stunned to see that this movie has 91% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. I thought that that's pretty generous. I like Christopher Landon. He did the two Happy uh Happy Death Day films. I think both of them are really creative. I thought that this one was um less uh less below the level of what those two films are. Anyway, I th- yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I, th- I thought it was a totally wasted, pre- which is it, like, it's a great premise, but I feel like it was totally wasted and doesn't really, it feels like it doesn't really understand what makes either of those two great genres work. And so it's some, it's a weird gray area in between because it feels like it's not brave enough to swing one way or the other and really be one of those type of films or try to manage to somehow be both. Mm. So try to, it's somewhere in the gray area. It just, it, it felt much more neutered than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I thought one of the problems with it too is that once you take on the body swap formula, there's certain scenes you feel like you have to go through. Like yeah. they have to your wake friends. up in the other person's body and, yeah. and be shocked. So as we were going through it, I was like, oh, do we have to go through each of yeah. these moments? So yeah. I don't know. It felt like it sort of dragged from that aspect. Kev? I liked it a little bit more than than you guys. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I definitely uh, I definitely don't think it's a great film. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 it was passably fun i think the i do think you're right i think some of the cons the concept or the conceptual elements um are a little some it 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 feels a little like puzzle pieces like this is what this movie has to be so we have to like you said we have to do these scenes um but that being said i thought that Catherine newton's performance was great i thought the way she plays the 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 serial killer the dead eyes that she has i thought um i you gotta give her credit that was a good performance um on Mm -hmm. her part um vince vaughn I don't necessarily think Vince Vaughn. I think it could have been anybody. I don't think it had to be Vince Vaughn. And I love sure. Vince Vaughn. Uh, I rewatched Wedding Crashes recently. Uh, you know, he has such a great presence on screen. I just didn't necessarily think. Now, there are times where he's playing the it's like it's like Jack Black in Jumanji when he's playing the teenage girl. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It, that stuff is funny. Like when Vince Vaughn is trying to, you know, the the characters inside his body and he's like playing with that aspect of it. Um, I will say one of the terrifying things about this film that really scared me, and I think they should have played into it a little bit more, was the concept of a young girl going to high school and inside her body is a serial killer and the sense of nobody around knowing that. And like mm-hmm. you have a murderer on the loose walking through your school. I mean, remember that scene in the, in the, in the beginning of the film after she specifically, after they switch, she's in the kitchen with her sister and she almost stabs her sister. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it was like, like that stuff is like that it, to me is genuinely terrifying because the audience knows something that the characters don't, but at the same time you have to think about it. That's no longer Catherine Newton. She does not think that that's her sister. So mm. this person could brutally just murder anybody. And I think that is the is the is the root of the scary element of the film. You're right. I kind of wish they would have explored and that. They don't embrace that. that yeah, needed to be embraced. It, it, yeah. It was more about, isn't it so funny to see Vince Vaughn act like a teenage yeah, girl? Yeah. I think there is something Damn so... Damn it, now you're making me want to see that movie. Like, hmm. that's terrifying. I mean, you have to think about, like, you know, you're you're seeing this, this, this teenage girl walk through school, and there is not an ounce of her left in that in that moment it's it's a serial killer it's a guy it's a person who has absolutely no regard for anybody i will i will say some of the some of the kills are very clever um but again it's like it's i as i get older sean we discussed this before i'm just over watching violence like that i mean i I was i was watching something the other day and i was I'm, i'm 36 now and i'm like 
I don't know that I like this over violence anymore. I'm like, I've gotten a little turned off by it. I don't Wait know if it's you be- turn on Quentin. Well, no, it's not because Tarantino does it in such a comical way. It's different. It's more of like um, context matters. Yeah, it's yes. context. But also, I feel like this year has really set people in a different mm-hmm. mindset uh, with what they're wanting to consume. And I think um, but Freaky Freaky is fun. So it's not like a, Freaky is not oh. like a hostile movie. It, it's and I'll fun. even I'll even say this much because um, it's coming to theaters. It's in limited theaters. And while I didn't love it, I kind of want to go and support it. You know, yeah. like it feels like the kind of movie that I want to go to uh, and, and buy a ticket and, yeah. and show support and let people know that. um that the movie theaters can operate safely. I know that we're the theaters have been dying for some type of content, no pun intended. Yeah. And now they're getting this a horror film, you know, that's going to be about stalking people and murdering teenagers, but in a playful way, in a Blumhouse kind of way. And I so would, um, I'd give it like a three out of five, three and a half out of five. I mean, I, I, I think I liked it a little bit more than you guys did. I, th- I think there was some aspects of it that I found entertaining. It's an hour and a half. Um, it worked for me in some in some aspects, but I actually don't disagree with any of your criticisms. All right, we're going to keep Fat Man brief because we've been heavy, <laughs> heavy Fat Man uh, in this week's episode. Title without laughing. <laughs> uh, we'll we've been we've been talking about this film now. We've been sort of raving about it. Uh, it's it's it is really great in the fact yeah. that it keeps it really grounded. Uh, it takes a totally bizarre premise uh, of a kid hiring an assassin uh, to go kill Santa Claus um, to a whole nother level. And really, he does it just because he gets coal one year for Christmas. Like, he's that annoyed <laughs> that he hires an assassin to kill Santa Claus. The fact that the Santa Claus is, is played by Mel Gibson, it was great to hear the Nelms brothers talk about the day that they found out Mel Gibson was going to be in the film. Um, this feels like one of those movies that would be flying under the radar, but we've been so de- desperate for content um, that it's getting a, a lot of attention now. And I hope more people do check it out. So I would highly recommend Fat Man. Kev, anything else you yeah, wanted to throw away about too. it? I enjoyed it too. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, I, I think Walton Goggins might be one of the most underrated actors of our of our time. Like, that guy is just incredible. Um, I mean, obviously he's brilliant in, in Tarantino's films and Hateful Eight. I mean, he's just an incre- incredible Justified, actor. if you've never seen Justified. He has I- to play scenes in this movie too that are so off the wall surreal and, and he, he plays does- them so seriously. Right. It's like, it's like, he. <laughs> it, 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 it's so interesting. Like to me, I, I find tone to be one of the hardest things for a filmmaker to nail. And when you have Goggins doing the stuff that Sean is referring to, there are some scenes that are just so ridiculous, (laughs) but he plays them so straight. Like he plays them so it's so unassuming. It's as if this is just how normal life is for this guy. Like there's no, it's not acting. And I think, I think there's a really, that's a really underrated aspect of filmmaking is tone, because you if you strike the right tone, you can have a movie that feels grounded and feels absurd at the same time, like a zombie land, right? Like a zombie land mm-hmm. where you're like you're it's it's insanely absurd, but you care about the characters. And I think that and that's why the Nelms were saying in our, in our interview that they had to they had to direct a film that could show somebody what their tone was so yeah. that they could sell Fat Man. It's kind of like, remember when uh, Barry Sonnenfeld told us that when he was directing Tommy Lee Jones in Men in Black, he had to tell him, don't act as if you're in a, like, don't try to be funny. Don't act as if you're in a comedy, Mm -hmm. and then it will be funny. Like, he had to get him to play it dramatically, really. And that's why Tommy Lee Jones is so funny in Men in Black, because he plays it so straight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what, you know, like, you play it, like, you you don't direct a comedy by going in, going, all right, guys, 
be funny. You you play it down. Yep. Yeah, so and that's true. exactly what Goggins does. Like like Goggins, <laughs> you just believe that this guy is this guy, and he's and, and Mel, Mel too. Gibson's the way that great. Mel approaches Santa Claus. Oh yeah, Gibson's Santa Claus is so great because it's it, it's like a business transaction. It's yeah. such an interesting concept. Like he's hired by the government. Like he works for the Treasury or whatever it was, and, and like and he's working with the military to help. The, it, it, it it makes sense. Like, I mean, like like with the mythology of of Santa Claus and that concept. You buy into it for yeah. some weird reason. Um, for a large chunk of the movie, they only call him Chris. And there's yeah. one point where, like, the government says to him, this isn't spoiler, it's still pretty early on. But the government says, like, look, Chris, we really love your holiday cheer, too. Like, it benefits us as well, too, from a financial <laughs> standpoint. Like, as long as people are invested in the season, we're all doing well together. Yeah. And I'm like, is this guy really Santa Claus or is he crazy? <laughs> like, yeah. what is going on here? I couldn't figure it out. And I love it. That's that's what they that's what they do so well. So also, and last thing on this movie is uh, is is Gibson's arc in this film was very interesting. It's it, it, it kind of reminded me of Gibson himself in regard the idea that the character keeps saying I've lost my influence and the idea of people remembering my mm. work and things like that. And I think it's an interesting concept because you do. It, we are such a recency effect society. Everything is so recent, right? Like, what did this person do recently? And I feel like we're getting further and further away of forgetting, like, the, the, the history of movies and the history of performances and things like that. And I do wonder, like, and I didn't I didn't ask him this because it was he was paired with two other people. But I would love to have gotten his opinion on does he feel like he's lost his influence? Does he feel like people have forgotten about Braveheart and Lethal mm. Weapon and like it, it, it's an interesting thing like if, as actors like Costner's another example like mm-hmm. I was thinking about this the other day Costner's like ha- have people forgotten about his influence and like I just find it interesting how recent we are as a society I don't think we look back enough anymore well you well, and I I feel like Kevin you and I kind of run into that sometimes with our jobs not to get too into the weeds but I, I know that sometimes my producers you know I, I would get jacked over having like you know, Sophia Loren. I know she's in like yeah. a new movie. Like I would kill for a Sophia Loren interview, but my producers would much rather have like, you know, uh, Lil Nas X. You know, they would rather yeah, have someone yeah. that's, that's like today relevant, doing stuff today that's modern, as opposed to like, I want to talk to the person that's been working right. for 50 years. Like, you know, it's 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 a different viewpoint. So yeah. I get what you're saying. But like, we are in an age where the movie star is essentially not a factor anymore in regards no, to people going to a movie. they've been so replaced. Yeah, like, they've yeah. been replaced. Think about the 90s. Think about when a Mel Gibson movie would come out or a Costner movie would come out or a Tom Cage. Hanks. Yeah, I mean, I... I Jim it, Carrey. Yeah. It's fascinating. I think I think they all... I think, especially Costner, I think those guys missed that to, to be To be fair, Mel, Mel shot himself in the foot a couple of times. Well, uh, I mean... From, from a police, outside, publicity standpoint. Yeah, so just, just to <laughs> clarify, my comments are more on the career not the outside of the career for stuff, sure. But yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, Mel could have stayed very successful for a very long period of time, but he went a little, he went a little gonzo, which I, which makes him interesting as a screen person because Agreed. you don't know what to expect from him. Uh, and as a director too, when he turns in something like Apocalypto, it's you don't really God, know what Apocalypto. to what to get from him. So yeah. I, I I miss I I think Mel Gibson it might be one of the nerdiest guys on the planet. Like remember the gnomes were talking about how geeky he was about like lenses and editing. Like that dude yeah. loves filmmaking. He love and Hacksaw Ridge is yeah he's a great director. If you haven't seen it, all right. Let's get to speaking of looking back on a legacy of uh of. Hollywood icons. This week's blend game is Sean Connery blend, obviously chosen because we recently 
lost him uh, and we've been reflecting on his career as a whole. And we ended up running a piece on Cinema Blend, which was um, Sean Connery roles that prove that he is a icon outside of the James Bond franchise. And I mean, it was just you forget the sheer amount of amazing films that he's been in over the years. There are actors who would love to have one or two of them. If you told an actor, uh, hey, you're going to be remembered for The Hunt for Red October, they would say, thank you. Cool. <laughs> thank you. That's amazing. Ain't mad about it. Yeah. And Connery has got so many uh, underneath his belt. So, um, Jake, I'm going to start with you. Where did you go when choosing your favorites? Because I'm pretty sure uh, I, I'm pretty sure I know where Kevin's going to go. But I, I think I, I know where Kevin's going to go, too. Um, I went with the sort of what was my introduction to Sean Connery as a kid, which is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There you go. Um, I mean, best one. one we're we're talking. Well, I, um, <laughs> well. I, I would say, well, I would say Raiders and Last Crusade are both 10. So like it's splitting hairs. But, um, you know, look, it's Indiana Jones is, is already one of the probably I would say top five greatest movie characters in the history of mm. cinema. So it says a lot that you can add another character who makes him better. Yeah. Like like right. Sean Connery makes Harrison Ford better in The Last Crusade for so many reasons. Um, he's so incredibly charming in that movie. He, you could like he generally feels like like he, it feels natural that he would be the father that that sort of that of of Indiana Jones. Um, he's a perfect. I don't know if foil is the right word, but perfect to kind of he like brings a lot out of of Harrison Ford out of Indiana Jones. Um, and but probably you know I was thinking a lot about sort of like the great moments um, that uh, of of his career of, of all of his uh, films. And the one that I kept going back to was when at the very end of the film in the, in the climax when Indiana Jones is he's he's hanging on to the ledge and he's going to fall in the hole and he's trying to get the 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 holy grail and uh, Sean Connery you know Dr. Henry Jones just says like like Indiana like just just let it go mm-hmm. and there's so many layers to that line about just about knowing when to let things go and and especially coming from him who kind of like turned away Indy you know his whole life you know he, he always kind of left Indy behind so he could go off and do this and do that and finally for him to step forward and realize and basically say, like, my son's life is more important than than this thing I've been chasing after my entire life. Mm. I it, oh, it just, like I rewatched it after he passed and it was uh, it, it, it now it has more significance to it. Um, I, I and in fact, that was the role that I believe he said if there were ever going to be a role that would have brought him out of retirement, it would have been that one. So I think that even to him, not saying it was his most important, not saying it was his favorite role, but it seems like it held a special significance to him as well. I don't think that we ever, ever put enough emphasis on the fact that Sean Connery walked into that franchise, um, which was, you know, an elite franchise, even at Mm -hmm. that level with Mm -hmm. only two films, you know, and created as captivating a character Mm -hmm. uh, as he did. And it goes to show not to throw shy under the bus, but it's really hard to do sure. <laughs> when you come in as the new guy if you don't hit the tone right. Sure. But I kind of realize now in you saying this, how much of that plays to how Harrison Ford let Sean Connery. Uh, because in two movies prior to that, uh, Indiana Jones is the coolest MF in the room. Mm-hmm. Right. And and in Crusade, he's. The son, you know, mm-hmm. who's constantly has to be like Junior. Yeah. And he's just humbled. And if yeah. Harrison Ford doesn't agree to do that, it doesn't work. 100%. Right? He has to play the opposite side yeah. of the coin what, for the what's duration the scene of it. Where like Harrison's kind of like flirting with a woman 
And then, like, and then Sean Connery implies that he already slept with her. Wait, he says he, she talks in her sleep. <laughs> she, she talks in her sleep. She talks yeah, yeah, yeah. Sleep. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and again, all that that dynamic doesn't work if Harrison Ford doesn't allow it. But Connery is is cooler than cool in that film yeah. and is unbelievable. So, yeah. uh, Kev, I'm pretty sure I know where you're going. But yeah, um, I feel like this is obvious. Um, the Rock. I mean, no question. It's not wrong. Yeah, it's yeah. Not I, wrong. I, I, dude, I can't argue. That's a great choice. Yeah. I just, I mean, Michael Bay. I mean, uh, but I also have a very distinct memory of seeing The Rock. So I remember my dad. Dad, so I, we, went, we went to AMC Patrick Henry in Newport News, Virginia. My mom, my dad, my brother, and I went. So it was, what, 96, I think was that think so. movie. So I was 12. My brother was 10. Um, and so my, I think I've told you guys this story before. But my, I'll never forget, like, I could see it heavily. Like, you walk up to the box office window. It was in the middle of a mall. And I remember my dad asking for four tickets, two adults, two kids for The Rock. And he was like, can I speak to a manager, please? And like, and like this manager walks around and he like, my dad goes over and he's like, you know, and I I asked him later on what he said. He goes, he just, he wanted to ask the manager if there was any sex scenes in the film. Like there's so they they could like block my brother and I's eyes. Um, Oh, you can watch all the violence you want, but yeah. Yeah, We can show that little (laughs) green ball into the guy's mouth and watch his freaking face melt. Oh yeah. That's fine. Um, so no, I just remember I'll never forget. I can see my dad asking that question. I can see my dad and mom covering our eyes during the Nicolas Cage uh, sex scene in the beginning of the film where that he has with it's his like right off the bat. They just get feet, it out of the way. Yeah, it's like it's like a, isn't it like a religious? It's a religious. It was like a religious thing. Like they were like they, this. Uh, the sequence was are they like trying four, to have a baby. I think they're trying to have a baby. And something to do with her religion, and they had yeah. to like. It's something I can't remember the specifics of that scene, but I remember because my eyes were covered. Because you've never seen it. <laughs> yeah, I, I still cover my eyes today. I still haven't seen the scene. Um, no, but uh, and then that film just came on the screen, and I was like, I mean, this was my first Michael Bay experience, right? Because I mean, I was I was too young to see Bad Boys at, at that point. Um, I had never like that. Remember that whole era of Bruckheimer and Simpson, Don Simpson and that lightning bolt. Oh yeah. There was nothing like that was such an iconic, that that might've been the first time I saw that. Cause that, that from that point forward, that, and then when you would see the dimension logo, you knew something was going to be good. Um, Shit was going down. Right. And the rock was like such a, uh, it's so interesting. Cause when I was 12, I feel like the 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 twelve year old me who watched it still watches it the way I do at thirty six. It was just like such an insane action movie. And I'm trying to remember now if I have this timeline wrong or right. But my parents took us to San Francisco to Alcatraz when we were kids. Wow! Funny, oh, I've en- always wanted to go. Funny enough, uh, Sean, uh, you'll appreciate this. When we were in San Francisco that weekend, this is all revolving around the rock, I guess. Um, my dad took me to a music store to buy me Enema of the State, which was Blink-182's album at nice. the time. Nice! And I'm so, so I guess that would give us the indication if that trip was before or after the rock. What year did that album come out? I don't remember 97, now. 97, I want to say. If it was So after, it might have been right after. So might, might have been after. Can someone confirm that? Because if that's the case. I'm looking. Okay. 99, that, I'm on it. Came right, out June well, first, nineteen ninety nine. Then that's perfect. Oh, 99. So that's, 99. Wow. So that means when I was in San Francisco at that point, I had already seen The Rock. So going to Alcatraz with my my family was was a big deal for me as a kid because it was because I'd seen The Rock. Now think about it this way: I'm walking through Alcatraz. I'm trying to remember the specifics of it. I, we we went into the famous cell where um who was the gangster that was um very big time gangster who was there Capone. Like, uh, 
Al Capone? Was Capone in Alcatraz? No, I don't think Capone ever it was went to somebody else. But I'll, all I remember is going. No, I thought Capone was in Alcatraz. I was that's, he? Yeah, he might yeah, have been. I'm yeah. pretty sure he was. But like they take you to the tour and you get to go into the cells. Remember in the movie they they lock them in the cells. Like they, that, that that's what happens in the film. That's what Ed Harris yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. They lock the um, the tourists in the cells. Yeah. Um, so just that whole experience. I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but. Uh, it's just the memories I have of that film specifically. Wait, the I want to bring you back specifically though. Do you like Connery in that film? Oh yeah. I'm sorry. I'm completely on a tangent with the rock. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I know you love the rock as a whole, but yeah. do you love Connery in that oh, no. movie. And the reason why I chose the movie is because it was my, it was genuinely the first time I really fell in love with Connery as an actor. Um, mm. I was 12. So, I mean, like I had seen the Indiana Jones films, but seeing it, like seeing an R rated film and seeing like the, the prom queen line. And like, there was just so many like details about that performance that were so great. My favorite scene in that film though, is one of my favorite scenes in the film is the scene he has with his daughter. Um, it's after this like gigantic car chase and he sits down in this quiet sequence and it's the girl from mall rats, the girl who's dating, um, I'm trying to remember her oh, name off the top of my head. Claire Forlani? Is it Claire Forlani? Maybe. I'm trying to remember her name, but she plays uh, uh, Connery's daughter in the film. And it's like this okay. sweet moment they have before they go enter into The Rock. Oh, uh, God, now you're making me want to watch The Rock. The Rock I know, is, I want to watch it too. But Connor, Connery's, Connery's so brilliant. The presence he has in that film, I love him and Nick Cage's chemistry. But to me, like that is my quintessential Sean Connery film. It's like the long hair at first and he's clean cut. He's back at the rock is the only one. Do who's... you like your haircut? Yeah, I just I, I love that movie. So, yeah, there, I, I know I, I know I went off on a tangent, but forgive me. There have been there have been a bunch of stories, obviously, that have come out since his passing. But did you see the, the story talking about like star power that Bruckheimer shared about the rock with with Connery? They fell no. they fell a few days behind schedule. And Buena Vista, who's Disney, uh, a few producers came down and they basically were going to start cutting the budget. Uh, they came down to set to like see what was going on, why it was falling behind, and they were going to cut the budget. And Connery basically yelled at them that they didn't know what they, how good they had it and how good this movie was going to be and kind of scared them off <laughs> so they wouldn't <laughs> cut the budget. So that's star power. Good for James him. Bond awesome. tells you to fuck off you. All right. Well then uh, that's to go that route, because I kind of assumed you were going to do the rock, which would have, would have been one of my choices. Um, I had to go with the James Bond film because he's so seminal. You know, he's he's the defining James Bond. Uh, and if I'm going to choose my favorite James Bond of his era, I went Goldfinger. Um, Goldfinger, to me, it's the third Bond film. It's when the, the franchise really hit its mark, uh, figured out exactly the types of stories that it wants to tell. Uh, had the um, I, I like when when Bond films have adventures that sort of ground them in uh, the U.S. And this has a Fort Knox aspect to it. Um, has Odd Job, first introduction of Odd Job, which is James Bond going up against a, a weird sort of henchman that, that lives in that universe. I think it was Connery at his most comfortable with that. Obviously, it's got so many great um, images that are that are time tested for the Bond franchise. Uh, the the character painted gold. Um, you had a Bond girl, an actual character in a movie named Pussy Galore. <laughs> like they were just like. <laughs> Why not? How old were you when that movie came out? Oh, no, I, I saw it years later. I think it came out in the 60s, so I wasn't. Oh, okay. I wasn't. So were you like, Jesus, like 15? Jesus, 15, Jake. 20? <laughs> I was at least 25 <laughs> by that point. Um, but that that was one of the first Bond films that Connery was in that I was going back to revisit. I was like, oh, this is actually an entertaining movie. Like sometimes they're just, they were a little dated and they were trying to find their way through. Um, but I thought they really started to click with Goldfinger and I wanted to, wanted to pick a Bond franchise. But uh, Michelle Garrist... And Lydia Moscoro 
And Philippe Carrier and many more went with Last Crusade. I feel like that's a seminal. Now, this is my time when I tell you guys that I'm a Temple of Doom guy. And I think that the I think it's between Raiders and Temple of Doom. I love Temple of Doom. I love Temple of Doom. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing. Temple of Doom Jake. Why is Jake making that face? That's why I this is a better like trilogy than Back I, to the Future. Anyway, I'm going it, that's actually Raiders, not, no, Raiders, Raiders is a better trilogy off. than Back to the Future. Hmm. Back to the Future is better than Indiana Jones. No. It is. It just is. Okay, you, you, you want a hot take? I, I got a hot science. take for you. There's only one good Back to the Future movie. No, right, that's not well, true. That's absolutely that is, absurd. That is not true. And also, we can't say Indiana Jones is a trilogy anymore because it's not a trilogy anymore. You know but, what we mean like by those it. Three I know. Films in the same are. way, I get it. Trust me, yeah. I still Star Wars is a trilogy. That's even being persnickety. You got me. You got me. The the the. the <laughs> I will, I love you saying that word. Such a great word. Such uh, a great word. <laughs> but I, I honestly, I think Temple of Doom is actually the best opening of all the. Indiana oh, I hate Jones that films. opening. Oh. I hate that opening. I love the opening. Right. All right. Todd and uh, Rokane Alzier Club and Obi-Wan. Indy Christina, they all went with The Rock. And then John Palmer chose another tremendous Sean Connery film, The Untouchables, um, which, again, perfect example of Kevin Costner is supposed to be the lead of that film. He's Elliot freaking Ness and Robert De Niro is Al Capone. And they both get the show stolen from them by Sean Connery's I gotta be honest with you, dude. I don't like The Untouchables. Oh, it's amazing. It's I amazing it's and you're super wrong. cheesy. No, no, no. It's amazing and you're wrong. I think it's super cheesy. Gabe has a really good one for next week. Uh, he's having us play uh, hashtag Diablo Cody Blend. Really oh, good. That's, that's interesting. That's one. interesting. Yeah, as soon as I read that, I thought that's going to be a really fun one. Where so the hell play... did that come from? I know where that uh, came from. I know where it came from. It's uh, so we Adam, Adam Brody, Brody mentioned it, and then I mm-hmm. just did a story. I was just reading a story uh, with Megan Fox talking about um, uh, Jennifer's body as well, and I was like, "Oh, that's great." We don't do enough screenwriters. I feel like true, and, and she's, she's a great one, absolutely of the level that like you can debate her contributions. She's, yeah, I mean, she's yeah. relatively young career, given you know a lot of mm-hmm. the people that we talk about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're all uh, she's great all work. Right. Diablo Cody Blend, Diablo Cody Blend. So you can let us know your pick on social media or uh, at realblend at cinemablend.com. Be sure to drop us a review. You can also uh, put them on the Apple Podcast, or you can send us uh, an email at realblend at cinemablend.com. And we are going to be getting out of here right now to go do our next premium episode, boys. It is another this or that episode. Oh, those are fun! Oh. And the this or that is going to be for the genre. I of love these science fiction. Science Ooh, fiction. This or that. I've on seen the science Blend fiction films. Premium episodes. So, uh, for people who are following us over there, you guys will be able to enjoy that. The rest of you guys will be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, follow us on social media at Jake's Takes at Kevin McCarthy uh, TV and at Sean underscore O'Connell. Also Gabe. Gabe has social media too. Gabe also has social media at Gabe Kovac. 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 I Kovac. Like it, would, it looks like Kovacs though. So it's. But know. it looks like Kovacs. So spell it out that way. But it's pronounced Kovac, you savages. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Uh, until then. Hubie. Hubie. No. 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 I will reinstate I will Dunkirk if I have to. Before we do. <laughs> until we get Hubie. the director of Hubie Halloween on the Jeez. show, we'll see that. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.